燃え上がれガンダムLineage of Gundam, which is Mobile Suit Gundam 00, the movie, A, Wakening of the Trailblazer. The Trailblazer has been A, Wakened. Uh, This movie is a hell of a thing. Oh, yeah. And this is probably the most unsettled my thoughts have been going into a conversation on Gundam so far. Yeah, and I will say this is easily the most my feelings on a Gundam thing have changed, and in this case, very much for the better. Um, based on rewatching it, because I was extremely unsettled on this movie the first time I watched it. It's this and G Reco were the two things that, like, when we started this podcast, I was I was very excited to revisit these specifically because I didn't know really how to feel about them. And rewatching this movie last night, I I fucking love this movie. Holy shit! <laughs> I I don't dislike it. I, I want to be clear. Like, I am. This is not a. Do I think it's bad or good? It's. And, and it's not even like I like the ideas and the story points. And let's just let's just, let's just quit be, be, you know beating around the bush. This is a movie about aliens. Yep. This is the big Gundam thing that deals with alien life. Uh, and I think if you are going to do a Gundam story about aliens, this is about the most true to Gundam way I think you could do it. And I like that aspect of it a lot. I have specific concerns with how it works as a movie. Uh, just like the film critic in me, I think it is, I like, I think it's a little diffuse in the sheer number of characters and how much plot it has to distribute among them. And I think the first hour is very slow, and and I think it this is a movie that would tremendously benefit from choosing someone to be your POV character and focusing it in a little bit because I think it it sort of lacks that that tightness. Um, but when it's on, it's on. The animation is stupendous. Uh, and I very, very much enjoyed the last 45 minutes, including an ending that absolutely fucking goes for it. Oh, yeah. And that is the thing that I walked away most like. Hell yeah. Um, but it is, this is one where I kind of feel bad having only watched it once. That is the premise of this podcast, of course, is yes. that I'm the one seeing it for the first time. You've seen it multiple times. So I think this is going to be an interesting conversation because maybe I will be exactly where you are next time I watch this movie. Um, but for now, this is one that definitely uh, threw me for a bit of a loop in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, one thing I will say, though, is I- I'm glad it 
this is not one where I watch it and I'm like, oh man, they fucked up a great ending to the show. I'm glad this exists. This feels like a very valuable extension of what Double O is. Um, and, and like a very important part of that story and universe. Um, Seiji Mizushima is a hell of a director. Um, but we'll get into all of that. This is a weird yeah. movie. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, it is really peculiar. Yeah, and I'm with you that I think like, so this movie's like reception is kind of all over the place. I feel like I've, I spent a lot of time the other day trying to like get a bead on like, what is like the general take on this movie? And I don't know. I can't tell. I feel like everyone feels differently about the movie. I don't, I don't, I feel like I'm probably like pretty far on the extreme end of liking it that there aren't a lot of people out there that I saw that like it as much as I have on the second viewing. Um, but yeah, there are some people that just despise this movie. There are a lot of people that are kind of neutral on it. There are a lot of people that like it quite a bit, but, but maybe don't love it. Um, and that's true both for what I could find of the Japanese fan base and the American fan base. Um, I think it is just like, I think it is a very difficult movie because it is relatively high concept. Like it's very, like it's, it's working mostly, I think on like a metaphorical or a symbolic level, like very intentionally, it is trying to work in that space um and it is also like arguably not even really the same genre as gundam typically is like i don't even know if i would really call this a real robot show because like the real robot part of it is so like de-emphasized here um so yeah it's a peculiar movie that has a peculiar reception um it did do quite well at the japanese box office like not like you know blowing down the house or anything but it, like it, it was successful um and it's reasonably enjoyed but yeah, I, I, I did. There's no real like history part of this. Uh, the movie was something that they, you know, they wanted to make the movie. It's the same production team. It's the same cast, all that kind of stuff. It was made shortly after the end of the series. So, you know, there's not really any additional history into how this movie came about because clearly they knew that this movie was coming. They had this idea. It's built very clearly into the TV show. They set up the idea of encountering extraterrestrial life. Some of the specific symbolism that is like in the ending of double o gundam with the flower but is like feels like it's actually exists to be used in the movie like all that kind of stuff it is not like there's a different story about how this movie came about it is just purely an extension of the tv show yes i mean the tv show even ends with the little text card saying mm -hmm. the movie is coming there's more to this story so yeah they knew they were doing it all along it's as i said before it's the exact same format seiji mizushima's previous show full metal alchemist had the original full metal alchemist was the same way it just wasn't split into seasons but they did all full metal alchemist they did the movie the movie is also a great i, I love the full metal alchemist movie that one is also one that has extremely divisive reception the conqueror of shambhala movie i think it is really interesting it is very out there and it is definitely a movie that sort of sticks to its guns in terms of what it wants to be and it is very uncompromising in that i think that can all be said of the gundam double o movie for very obvious oh, reasons yeah. um i think it's also worth noting sean this is the first gundam original movie since f91 Mm -hmm. So Gundam is in theaters all the time in Japan because of the various compilation movies. Um, and we have talked about the high profile ones like the original Gundam 79 and the Zeta Gundam new translation. Um, but for the most part, Gundam has very few actual theatrical movies that are just movies. So Shars Counterattack, F91, this and Gundam Narrative, I think are the only four, right? Yes. And then very soon we'll have Hathaway's Flash. Well, that will also be in that category. 
Yes. Um, and I, I might argue that uh, the Gundam Wing movie should just be best understood as a movie, the OVA, the Endless Waltz, because it yes, was very yeah. clearly a movie that was then split into three and then recombined into a movie, but it's very much a movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, so maybe you can say five overall, but this is the third of the movie movies. Um, and uh, we did talk about narrative on the Unicorn Gundam episode. We might need mm-hmm. to circle back around to that at some point because we didn't talk about it a lot. But yeah, um, so... This is, I will say, I, I do not view this rapturously in the way I did Shars, Shars Counterattack or F91, but it is cool to have a, another proper like movie that was always planned to be a movie in the, in the Gundam pantheon. Absolutely. So, so I don't want to give my big take on the movie yet because I want to hear yours, Jonathan. I want to hear more. How did you feel? What are your takeaways? What is Gundam, Mobile Suit Gundam 00 the movie colon Awakening of the Trailblazer to you? It's a big question. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I feel very divided on it. I I think, like I said earlier, my problems with it are not as a story. The story elements, and I feel like this is where it's maybe divisive in the fandom, is just the, like dealing with aliens. I love that side of it. I think the idea that they decided to do a, a first contact alien story, and they do it without those aliens ever speaking a single word in the entire movie... Or really, like, clearly communicating in any way other than the very 2001 Tree of Life experimental big flash that Setsuna gets at the end of the entire, like, creation and destruction of their entire form of life. That's the most, like, direct communication they have, but it's purely visual and operatic, you know? Uh, and, th- and they're barely even humanoid. Like, there's a couple of moments where they assume something resembling human shape, but it's very few and far between. For the most part, they are just hunks of metal. And that is what we are communicating with, fighting, dealing with throughout the entire movie. And I think as a high-concept piece of sci-fi, that is fascinating. And I think it is executed, especially in the end, very well. And that it goes to some very big, broad places with it. And it is all in service of extending the central themes of the TV show into a big metaphor for this movie. Um, it's something very symbolic, as you say, Sean, about communication and understanding and pushing that to an absolute extremist point of these are things that do not look, feel, sound, act, behave anything like us. How do we understand them? And that is the fight of this entire movie. Um, that aspect of it, I love. Uh, Metal Setsuna at the end of the movie definitely threw me for a loop because that is one of the wackier images in the history of Gundam. Would you agree? Yes, but I will say that was like my main thing I remembered from this movie was just that ending because love it or hate it, that is a striking, memorable, oh, yeah. incredible moment. Like I, when I, I say, love that fucking ending so much. When I say sticking to your guns, that's what I mean yeah. of of showing us metal alien Setsuna at the end of your movie. Um, so, so I like all of that. I think as a, like an arc for Setsuna and Celestial being in this universe, it works. I just have some like, and this is where I need to watch it again. Cause this is also sort of how I felt after like an initial viewing of F91 is just figuring out the pace of this thing. You know, this movie is sort of having to do th- the same thing season two had to do, but in a movie length, which is get the gang back together, start up the story again. You know, you've, you've kind of reached a down point. Now the story has to start up again. Um, and I do think it has a very long first act that has a lot of exposition and a lot of jumping around from character to character. And I feel a little uns- like 
Gundam 00 is a very ensemble-focused show, and that is totally fine for a TV show, and it is a strength of that show. I think in a movie, it can feel a little diffuse when you are jumping between characters and have no clear POV. Uh, you know, Setsuna is our main character, but is gone or quiet or just not there for very long stretches of this movie. Uh, I think the movie is overly concerned with having to touch base with every single character from the TV show. I think that is a problem that, like, it results in the, the single clumsiest piece of writing in all of Gundam 00 is in this movie when you have the guy from the military who talks about Sergei Smirnov, and I found that like a weird reading of Sergei Smirnov's entire life in Gundam mm -hmm. 00, and like a weird attempt, like, since he's dead, we still have to bring him up because we're mentioning every single character from that show. Um, and some of the, like, like I don't know if I needed as much of Billy Katagiri as we had and his weird fan service girlfriend. Um, there's, there's just like, I, I wanted more focus at various parts of this. I don't think the movie finds an interesting place for Saji and Luis. Um, to the point where I wonder if it would be better for them not to be in it. But at that point, like, they are so crucial to Gundam 00. Is it Gundam 00 without them? I wish they had found something more there for them. Um, so that's where I feel some messiness in just, like, its construction as a movie. But when this thing is cooking, uh, it is very well directed. The animation is great. The sheer scale of what they are imagining for the final, like, hour of this movie is incredible. And something like... Especially for something that it was already as well animated as Gundam 00 is. You have to up the ante if you're going to do a movie. I do think they effectively up the ante. The battles are incredible. I think some of my favorite characters in terms of getting moments in this aren't the ones I would have expected. Like, I think Graham Aker kind of steals the show at various mm -hmm. points and gets a phenomenal... Like, that is one where I felt like I needed more of him at the end of the TV show, Gundam 00. Like, just a final resolution. And we get it in the movie and I'm perfectly satisfied with that. You know, um, and there's there's some other characters who I think get that kind of treatment. Um, there's some who don't have a lot of focus, but it's okay because I think they were pretty settled at the end of the show, like Sumeragi, uh, and she gets an entire like space station for the future named after her. So that's fucking great. Um, yeah, it's you know it's a movie I want to watch again. It is a movie I want to digest again. It is definitely one that once you see the shape of where they are going with it and where they are pushing Setsuna and this world. It felt right to me in ways that I, I don't know if I can even verbalize, but like, okay, yes, this is the ending Gundam 00 wanted and needed to have. But also like, man, what a fucking journey this show takes from starting uh -huh. in episode one with like the armed interventions and it's very boots on the ground Gundam grounded to where they go at the end of this. And yet the best thing I can say for Gundam 00 is I do think that evolution feels very organic to what they were doing uh, and principled as an artistic thing. So that is my opening slew of words. Does that even make sense? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I think, yeah, because I think we're, as is common, I think we're like more or less on the same page with like the strengths and the weaknesses of the movie, but maybe like judge them slightly differently. Because, and I think that's very much what my take was the first time I watched it. I'm feeling like some of this movie I'm finding a little bit like perplexing. Um, it's, it, yeah, it feels sort of diffuse and kind of hard to get a hold of because the narrative perspective is it feels a little bit all over the place. It is, it, yeah, I think it has a little bit too much of a tendency for sure of, and I, and it's, you know, I get where this comes from. You're making a thing that's a movie for a TV show. So you want to like make sure that everyone's favorite character at least gets some screen time. So, so let's have someone say the name Sergei Smirnov so everyone could be like, hey, Sergei's in it. At least, you know, his fucking shitty kid Andre dies in this movie. Um, I'm sad he got a heroic death, but at least he's fucking dead. We can rest easy knowing that he's no longer in the world. Um, which I had forgotten. I didn't remember that he died. I didn't even remember he was in the movie. I'm glad. I'm glad they got rid of him. 
Um, but yeah, so it has a little bit of too much of that urge. Um, and but I was so intrigued at it. And um, like I said, I think a lot of like the major content of the plot of this movie in the years since I watched it, like if you had asked me a week ago what the plot of Double O Awakening of the Trailblazer was, I would have told you there are aliens in it. They think they're from Jupiter. And at the end, Cessna is a metal boy. Like I just kind of like it was hard for me to hold on to <laughs> what like the main content of the movie was but that image of Setsuna at the end encased in metal embracing Marina and them saying we like I understand you we understand each other and then the double O quanta turning into flowers like that like 30 seconds or whatever of the very very end was stuck with me so hard that I've always really wanted to revisit this movie and upon revisiting it I think it is like really appropriate that we are doing this podcast right after we talked about on the weekly stuff, uh, a bunch of Godzilla stuff, because going into this movie, knowing what it is, this movie is just a kaiju movie with Gundam characters in it. Like it is 100% top to bottom. It is just a fucking kaiju movie. And that I think is part of where that diffuse narrative comes from. And it's a sort of a love or hate element of a lot of kaiju movies is that they typically don't have clear, strong protagonist type characters, but instead are assembled across a wide range of different characters that are here's the military people here's the scientist people here's the like reporter characters because there's always a reporter character here's this that and the other team here's like the the family because there's always a family group as well that might like each character represents one of the other diffuse groups of character groups um but those movies are much more that kind of kaiju movie is much more interested in constructing its narrative around the core central concept of what is happening in the movie more than characters. And that's very much what Awakening of the Trailblazer is. It is entirely a movie about this symbolic concept of what does it mean to understand one each other, one another. And it assembles everything in the movie around that idea of understanding, failure of understanding, how to push through boundaries, um, like what it means to be aggressive and create that like violence and how that disrupts understanding like all those different elements that are things the tv show explores so in depth often through character drama or like bigger plot machinations awakening of the trailblazer does through more high concept symbolism and metaphor like as embodied through primarily its alien nemesis the else that are you know a fascinating kind of reflection of all those things of it is an alien race that seeks to understand things, but to understand things, it must consume them. Um, and so it reflects the things that it consumes. So its militarism reflects the militarism of, of us as we move out into space. Um, but then also they are so malleable and so able to understand one another once you break through that membrane because they can understand another, one another on that perfect level. And then sets at the end becoming a metal boy representing that fusion like i think all those elements of the plot once you for me like once i let go of watching it as a gundam thing because i think it's hard to watch it too much through the lens of gundam outside that that core theme is a major gundam theme and not just gundam every fucking mecha thing is somehow about some metaphysical understanding people that's what Edeon is about that's what eva is about that's what bottoms is about that's what macross is about mecha just likes how do we transcend the physical and, and understand one another other than that core theme and the fact that it does have mobile suits in it, this is not much of a Gundam movie. But if you fucking put Godzilla in it, it would be a hell of a Godzilla movie. 
So I, I love that whole description, and I think linking it to a kaiju movie makes sense, because I very much had the feeling I do when I'm watching a kaiju movie, because I am not in that life completely the way you are, Sean. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I might feel like a little bored, or I feel like the movie's a little slack, but then like the moments where they pull it all together, I go, holy crap, this is great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and... I think this movie does that. I I do want to defend it as like Gundam just a little bit more because I do think like it's such an interesting thought experiment to say like of all the Gundam stuff we've seen so far, if you were going to do aliens, how would you do it in Gundam? And I think you could say, well, Gundam just if you add aliens, it's not Gundam anymore. And I think that's part of like maybe what we see here. But also like it wouldn't be Star Trek. It wouldn't be Star Wars. It would not be any of the other like sci-fi that we generally think of when we think of aliens. It would be this. It would be the... Because Gundam is all about how humanity's movement into space makes humans something we can't imagine. And so it makes sense that the alien race they encounter and the entire sort of thing that happens would also be something beyond our realm of perception. And then the challenge is to bring that into our realm of perception. And I think that's something this movie does... Very well. That is the side of this that I felt consistently like compelled by, and I think that's where you say like the kaiju format helps it because it is the there is no protagonist, but the core of the movie is this prismatic view on this phenomenon happening and trying to understand it from all these angles. And that side of it, I think, works um, very well, and it's something I want to watch again to sort of see like when I know where it ultimately goes, how does it present the L's to us and all of that. Um, yeah, it obviously, like, it, it feels quite... Like, this is not a Gundam movie with mobile suit battles. It's got battles with mobile suits in them, but there's never a point where two mobile suits go crazy against each other, right? Um, they are fighting very different things in this movie. Um, and so I see what you mean, but I also think, like, you know, if I, I feel like Gundam 00, because of how it sets itself up, is uniquely equipped to tackle the alien question. And then when they tackle it, this does feel like, yeah, this is how Gundam would do it, and I like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and I think one important piece of context here for my experience is, Jonathan, you went into this movie knowing that this is the movie where alien shit happens in Gundam. Yes. I did not know that the first time I watched oh, wow. this movie. So when I watched this movie, I went in, the only thing I knew about it back fucking like six years ago when I watched this thing for the first time, the only thing I knew was I really liked this TV show and I knew that there was a movie and that the movie was a continuation and like a climax on the TV show. And that was it. I didn't know shit about there were aliens. I so like as soon as that started happening, I was like, "What the fuck?" Because yeah, good like alien stuff is so not a part of Gundam. And I think part of the reason why it feels that strong is because like alien stuff is so common in the broader mecha like genre. Um, it's like very common. Um, it's more common than what Gundam does. Even like in real robot stuff, like Vodums is still. Vodums isn't set on Earth. Like, technically every character in Vodums is a fucking alien. Like, Macross is all about aliens. Eva is basically about aliens because it's more what less what the angels are. I mean, that, no, that literally is what the angels are. Um, it's also what the Evas are. It's what everything is. Everything is an alien in Eva. Um, <laughs> Depression um, is the ultimate alien in yes. Eva. Um, but, yeah, so it's like alien stuff is so common in the mecha genre and so I think it's like it's a particular thing that like it feels so kind of strange for it to to touch Gundam because Gundam has stayed away from it you know at the time that this movie came out like what like 30 fucking years basically uh 31 years uh and so yeah like it, it was like I really the first time I watched the movie just did not have the lens with which to kind of like process what it was doing um 
but yes, like I do think like if you go in understanding part of what the premise of this movie is, is effectively what if Gundam does an alien, like I think it is by far the best that this franchise could hope to do that. Like I don't think it's something that Gundam should try often or maybe ever again. Um, but if like you're going to do it, this is the way to do it. And yeah. And then if like this time when I went in understanding that that's what it is, knowing where it ends up and that kind of stuff and like being able to put on that kaiju lens that like I realized like 15 into the movie minutes of the movie like wait if you just took out all the Gundam characters and like halfway through the movie Godzilla shows up and then instead of space battles the aliens just land on earth and all because you wouldn't have the budget to do space shit but they land on earth and then one of the aliens like becomes an evil Godzilla because it absorbs some of Godzilla like that's kind of just what the plot of Godzilla 2000 is um like yes. it's like very <laughs> much in that same realm it is very easy to imagine like taking this script as a foundation and removing about 50% of it and then changing that 50% to be a more specific kaiju movie and you could just make it um, like it is so in that tradition, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, and I think that's probably what gives it the structure it does have. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting movie, Sean. Where should we where, where should we take it? Uh, you know, what? actually, one thing I wanted to say because you were on it, you um, okay, two thoughts I had while you were talking. Again, one, I want to commend you for making it through five hours of Gundam Double O podcast without spoiling that Setsuna becomes a metal boy. Oh, I yeah. don't know. That's like you making it through all of the original Gundam podcast without saying the word new type. I'm very <laughs> impressed. Yeah, I'm, you need to re-listen to all those original podcasts and just spot all the times I almost say the word new type and have to stop myself and be like, hmm, this is a, like psychic bullshit hasn't happened yet in Gundam. Like, remember that, Jonathan? Remember when anything psychic had never happened in Gundam? How crazy yes. is that uh, to to remember that there was a time when psychic shit did, just didn't exist? Uh, I also wanted to respond to earlier in this conversation you brought up the just the ending with Marina, and I know we'll get there. But when I say, and I said this earlier in like my my opening statement, um, that this felt like the right ending, I think one way it just feels emotionally right is the very clear planned out structure of this series where. Season one ends with Setsuna writing a letter to Marina trying to express his feelings. And mm -hmm. season two ends with Marina writing a letter to Setsuna trying to express her feelings. And this movie, effectively part three, ends with them together not really having to say anything and understanding each other's feelings. Uh, it's just, it's, it is really clear, like, even as you're like gawking at like, holy crap, they went for it with crazy metal Setsuna. I would not have predicted that after episode one. It really does feel like this is a story they knew they were telling. That's the word I've used in all of our Gundam 00 conversations very confidently that this is mm -hmm. a show that started with purpose and ended with purpose and kept that purpose up. And it probably, it almost certainly went in directions you did not expect at the outset, but that does not mean they were not the organic directions that they always intended to go and did with with purpose and clarity. And that is a really cool thing for a, for a work that is honestly pretty sprawling. It's two seasons and a movie made over three or four years. That's a big thing to do this precisely, you know? Yeah. And, and the fact that like, it feels like it was always made with the understanding of it having this trajectory, right? That it starts very grounded. And then as it goes on, it spirals more into science fiction. Um, and it gets like more and more out there. And that's part of what this movie is, is like, I think if you're someone who was kind of put off by 
it getting a little bit more extreme in season two with the sci-fi stuff and the psychic stuff and a little bit more of like the kind of the melodrama soap opery kind of like character dynamics that season two engaged in a little bit more. Like, I think you're going to be put off by this movie because it is, you know, not with necessarily the soap opera stuff, um, but with the like that the concept the sci-fi stuff it like going away from this very grounded we are just enmeshed in this very powerful reflection of modern earth like geopolitics uh to ending with aliens and uh like you know what is i am convinced to this day the synthesis ending of mass effect 3 just like rips off the idea of like double a gun oh, you're right does that you you're know, right that's what fucking the Mass Effect. I mean, I'm sure it actually didn't. I'm, I don't know if the gun double, if the Mass Effect people ever watched Double O Gundam, but it is like this is like what the idea of the synthesis ending in Mass Effect Three would be if like they could have gotten their head fully around. I think what that concept was about. Um, yeah, this is a better Gundam, version of that, definitely. Yeah, Double O Gundam executes that much more elegantly, and I like the ending of Mass Effect Three, but I think it's a lot messier than this. Um, but yeah, like that trajectory, it is if you really liked where you were and you didn't want to move, it might bum you out. And I sympathize with those people that just so much like the early Double O Gundam stuff and didn't like that they moved away from that. But if you like the trajectory, I think it is like very precise. Um, and it's so impressive, like you said, Jonathan, that like it feels like it was planned or at least planned enough that they had all of those seeds planted early on to you know blossom in the ending quite literally with the flower because all that imagery of flowers is all throughout that show but you don't like it's not as notable um and it was one of the things i noticed like when i rewatched it knowing the flower imagery from the very end that's like oh this stuff is all planted here all along like there's always this image of a flower like growing in the desert in Cessna's flashbacks and stuff and they've been it's in the first that. scene of the show it's in the yeah. first theme song daybreak's bell i believe starts with that yeah, so, so it is yeah. this, like, symbol they have been building, but they haven't drawn a lot of attention to it because it feels like they want, they were waiting for this moment to say, like, now let's, like, really bring it to that level that we've been using some of this recurring symbolism, and now let's, like, really bring the story to that place. Um, and to bring it to that place does mean that, like, the storytelling becomes more diffuse and more abstract, but it is able to do something that the TV show would not have been able to do with this more character-focused storytelling approach. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like the show gets to have the best of all worlds because yes. you get to do the very in-depth of the moment geopolitical stuff, but they also get to do something that is even more fundamentally Gundam, which are these bigger philosophical discussions about the purpose of humanity and our relationship to war and conflict and our relationship to each other. All these questions that are like on the mind of the show from moment one, right? And are always there. And I think because of the specific trajectory in that it starts very grounded and opens up, it never really loses that geopolitical sense. This movie does not deal with it much, although there is still, like, it lives in the DNA of the movie. Marina is a character trying to, like, find places for Middle Eastern refugees in this film, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's not a focus of this movie, but that is still something that informs it. And so what it is doing it is it is, it is drawing very explicit connections between our current moment of politics and much more eternal, always evolving conversations about humanity. And I think doing that very gracefully over the course of the entire project that we now have full view of, now that we've watched both seasons in the movie. Um, and that is something that just makes it feel like such a big, towering, special, unique Gundam work, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And man, you talk about the flower. Mm -hmm. The There is definitely the the moment, like... 
I was a little unsure of this movie in a lot of ways. And I said, like, my thoughts are unsettled. The moment where I was watching this movie and I went, I am so glad this exists. And this feels like the right ending is when you see the flower in space. Mm-hmm. When you do that cut and you have, I think it's you see all the characters that we know looking at it. And then you see what the ship has transformed into. And they make the absolute right call to drop the mic and cut to credits right then. And we'll do the final scene after the credits. But they need to let you digest that image. Because you just, like, the whole series just kind of snaps into place with that image. It's like the last little puzzle piece. And it snaps into place. And you see the full breadth of it. And I think you go, whether or not your thoughts on the movie are fully settled, mine still aren't. But you do go, I see the shape. This feels complete. And that's like one of the best things I can say for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's that thing where um, I, I feel like you that that specific like sequence in terms of like its direction is is like a pretty common particularly in anime likes to do this of of that here's like we're going to cut to all the reactions and then we're going to cut to the thing that has like some like big symbolic like something has happened i feel like usually when shows try to do that it is often not that effective because because while you're looking at the reaction shots you're imagining well what could it possibly be to like elicit the react this reaction in all these characters, and I feel like usually the actual reveal doesn't resonate because like the ground narr- like the narrative groundwork has not been laid for that symbol to carry the like implicit connotations it needs, right? Because symbols don't need to be things that you can like understand on a like I can like break it down and like describe to you in a you know I'm an English teacher so it's like I don't need to write like the paragraph response or whatever to tell you what the fucking green light in the great gatsby means right if it's supposed to be an effective symbol it should be able to affect its narrative impact on you whether you can explain that narrative impact or not and i feel like a lot of times that requires narrative groundwork done within the story itself not things that you can assume like an assumed shared experience from an audience is just going to come in knowing that a flower should represent this for double Gundam or whatever. You have to set those ideas of symbols up within the narrative work itself. Um, and this is, I think, maybe the most successful version of one of those sequences I've seen where because they have been so thoughtful about it, even if you've not been picking it up consciously, they've been using this image of the flower to represent all these ideas about like the beauty of life, like the struggle of life of, of flower of this one lone flower in the desert, the single flower that felt gives a uh, Setsuna that still is alive, even though it's in space with him, right? Like this idea of life persisting um, in this beautiful, passive, peaceful way and life thriving on its own um, in the, the visage of a flower like that symbol is so thoroughly established by the full preceding narrative that yeah like my jaw dropped even though i knew it was coming that was one of the other things i i vaguely remembered was like the flower space station at the end um but like my jaw still dropped when i saw it because i think it is such an effective like use of that technique in a way that i am talking about some symbolism stuff in my ninth grade class right now and i really wish that they were all massive gundam fans because this would be such a good example (laughs) to use um rather than having to think of fucking like fairy tales or some bullshit it's like why can't we all have just like watched 50 episodes of double o gundam in the movie because then you all would understand what symbolism is because it's so good here I would love if you just out of the blue showed your kids the last 10 minutes of Gundam 00 and see if like, now react, what does that symbol mean? And they would all just be like, are you okay, Mr. Chapman? <laughs> what like, happened? 
How could, why do you not understand what it means when the man shows up and now he's made of metal and kisses the blind old, or the hugs the blind older woman while the worm murder machine turns into flowers? Like, come on, this is very easy stuff. <laughs> I love Gundam, Sean. This is one of those moments where I step back and I go, I love that this thing exists and we can make these jokes. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, God, oh man, you're talking about symbols. The Gundam as a symbol. Like, that's something we could make a whole podcast about, you know? Just, like, how has the Gundam been used as a symbol over the course of this series? And and I feel like Gundam 00 might be the richest vein of that in any Gundam show for, mm-hmm. like, how many visages the Gundam takes on and how many meanings it has. It is an angel to Setsuna. It is a god to Setsuna. It is a devil, in some cases, in the hands of certain characters. Um... It is a symbol of hope. It is a symbol of rebirth. It is a superhero. And in the end here, like it is this machine of death that becomes this literal flowering of life. It is something that can quantize and literally escape the physical boundaries. It is all these different things. And this is like, I I love works where symbols are not fixed, you know, and a symbol can be multiple things. And I feel like Gundam 00, one of the things that makes it feel so fresh and, and like both of a piece with Gundam the series, but also free enough to play with Gundam the series, is that the symbol of the Gundam means different things. Like Gundam Seed. I really like Gundam Seed. You really like Gundam Seed. The Gundam doesn't mean anything, I think, different than the Gundam typically means in Gundam Seed. Mm-hmm. Gundam 00 is really thinking about like what can the Gundam be and what can it mean. Um, and it's helped by having some of the best mobile suit designs in the series in that we have you know, like 30 Gundams over the course of the show, but we also have three for Setsuna and they are all fucking killer knockout designs. But they all just grow to mean different things to you as a character, or you as a viewer. Um, and and I really just truly love um, that last image and that we end on the Gundam as a symbol and a transformed symbol. And what is more um, evocative of the arc of Double O than having the last shot be the war machine that started all of this end by being in a field producing and blooming flowers from its body. Like that is, that is Gundam double O in a nutshell in one image. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's really powerful. Um, and it, it's also comes from, I think one of the other themes that's like a background theme in double O Gundam. I think this movie kind of puts it a little bit more in the, in the mind um, again is like this theme of like, contradiction um that also is like manifest in those symbols as well because as you're saying Jonathan, like really a powerful use of symbolism is stuff that can and that's part of what i was saying of like it's not something you need to be able to describe to someone for it to work on you because symbols and this is true of man i feel like i'm just giving like the same speech <laughs> giving in my english classes but symbols don't communicate people to people on literal levels like that's the de- definition of what a symbol is is that it communicates to, with you emotionally not through language um, so, and that's true of stop signs as much as is true of the flower at the end of Double O Gundam. The reason why a stop sign, a red octagon, is an effective use of road signage is because you can spot it from a great distance away. And as soon as you see it, once you have learned the meaning of the symbol, you process it on an instinctual emotional level and feel the emotion of stop and you should be stopping, right? Um, and that's what a good symbols do is that they communicate with you on an emotional level. Good narrative symbols contain lots of different meanings. And oftentimes, if it's really a powerful work, those meanings can be contradictory, but it still works because it's not literal, because you're processes, processing it emotionally, and emotions are self-contradictory. And so yeah. one of like, yeah, so one of the core 
elements of Double O Gundam that's been there since episode one, because they do a callback line with Graham Aker back to something he says in episode one in this movie, uh, is that celestial beings existence itself is contradictory, right? And which is to mean that like fighting to pursue peace or like using violence to create peace or to create like compassion and understanding between people is like an obvious like contradiction on its face. And it, it is this thing that you we all struggle with is like, how do you, right? It's that like meme of like, how do you fight intolerance if you are a person who is tolerant of different viewpoints, right? It's like, where do you draw these lines? What does it mean to embody these virtues? Where do those virtues stop? Like, and it's those contradictions of like, no human being can be purely like tolerant of all things or you would be dead because you just be, you tolerate your own fucking destruction, right? In the same way that you can't just sort of achieve the ideal of peace just by being passive and hoping for peace for people, you do need to fight for it, even if that fighting may cause more conflict. Um, and that's sort of one of the core elements of this show is dealing with those contradictions. Um, and I love that the con that contradiction embodied in the Gundam, right? That the Gundam is both a devil and it's an angel, right? I mean, in the original Mobile Suit Gundam, that was one of its nicknames that Zeon had for it was the White Devil. Because to them, it was this thing that as soon as it showed up on the battlefield in the second half of that show, you knew that you were fucked because Amuro was killing every single person he saw. Um, but it also, to the other side, it saves lives. Um, and for Setsuna, it represents a, a saving angel. And then at the end, it finds that it's actually the fallen angel ribbons that is the one piloting it. Um, and so the Gundam is this thing that is this weapon meant to create peace, which is something that is a contradiction in and of itself. And I love the way that that ending embodies that vision through the, the idea of the Gundam blossoming into flowers, that, that it can be both of these things in this narrative world, that it can be both this weapon, but that also it can represent peace at the same time. And it embodies that contradiction so powerfully. Absolutely. Um, you know, so our, our last episode, you, you mentioned this earlier of the weekly stuff podcast, our other podcast, uh, like, listen and subscribe. Um, we did our, we talked about Godzilla versus Kong and the other, some other Godzilla movies and the previous legendary Godzilla movies. Um, and since that podcast came out, there was a piece by the critic Matt Zoller sites in mm -hmm. Vulture um, about basically just talking about why he loves the legendary monster first movies. And there's this passage in that piece. And I would really recommend looking it up again. It's from the site Vulture um, where he talks about how the legendary monster movies use the monsters as symbols and that the strength of it is that the symbols are multivalent. And like one of the things that made Gareth Edwards' original Godzilla movie so, or not, it's not the original Godzilla movie, the original modern legend, legendary movie from 2014. One of the things that I think touched people about it is that you can't, exactly say what Godzilla is a symbol of in that movie because it changes depending on who's looking at him mm -hmm. and he can be he is a symbol of like the main character's dead dad he is a symbol of nature it is a and, and like nature both its divine protective side and it's like wrathful like Old Testament God side um, and that is something those movies employ very powerfully and yeah Gundam 00 gets it I think the other you know Gundam show we've probably talked about this the most with is Turn A Gundam which I think yes. gets this extraordinarily well with its main Gundam and like that is a major idea of that show in that uh, Lauren sees that as like this very benign nice you know it's a nice dude with a mustache it's this really nice thing but you know you have Corin Nander who who comes from the past and it is it is the nuclear bomb to him it is the apocalypse it is terror you know um, and and that is that is something that Tomino is dealing very directly with there and I love seeing you know a team that is disconnected from Tomino take it a step further here um 
And, you know, this is before we get to all the continuing religious illusions that we get here. And I think mm-hmm. this one, man, the the final flashback where you go back to uh, Olia Schuhenberg in, in like, a hundred years ago. And you have uh, Toru Furia as the boy who, like, becomes Ribbon's Allmark there. And so you basically have, like, you know, God and the, the angel who will become the devil, the angel Lucifer, like, in their heaven together in the, like, before times, in the Edenic times talking. And then you cut to, like, the all far other side of it in the future um you know it it this continues on from what we talked about in part two a lot of anime goes for its christian religious allegories and imagery some of it we think does it pretty clumsily like neon genesis evangelion some of it does it extraordinarily well and i think double o falls on the extremely well side of that um although i will say you know eva the thing eva does best and i think the reason eva endures is because it also understands the machines as symbols are multivalent um mm-hmm. and does that very well um but yeah this is it's such a rich thing to talk about and i do love how much of gundam double o you know in the other episodes sean we've at this point we would have been talking about all the characters in depth but this movie just gives you so much on that symbolic and visual level to talk about that's where we are 45 minutes in is still talking about this and it's great it's a very rich conversation yeah, yeah, because I I don't know if like there's really much of a point to break it down character by character because it's not with the you know there's a couple of characters like Setsu that will have to like address his specific arc, but like but yeah. yes, like like the movie's not interested that much in the specific character arcs. It's interested in how do you construct a story to express these ideas. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, let's because I, I also want to hit on that scene at the end just because it does follow up from one of the main things we talked about last episode was season two of where season two like really brings all the religious symbolism and imagery to the forefront and yeah it is a thing i really appreciate because it is something that anime toys with all the time and i think eva is a pretty good example of it being a thing that like it's like vaguely evocative but it doesn't feel like it has anything underneath it with the christian imagery um because it just feels like you pulled some references to the Dead Sea Scrolls. You named things angels, and like you, you use the like words Genesis in the English language title, right? Like you pull some of like the uh, the surface level elements of those images, but I don't think that show outside of like a couple of things like Kaudu, um, in his arc, like is not that interested in really diving into what those things represent and what they mean, um, and like their narrative elements. And here, Double O Gundam is extremely interested in that, right? And it feels very well learned. Um, not to say that it's like this one-to-one allegory for fucking Paradise Lost or some shit. Um, but it is pulling on those elements so strongly um, that, yes, like, again, whether you are, like, aware of Christian mythological elements or not, like that scene with the Elia Schoenberg and, yeah, like, the the basis of Ribbon's Allmark, like it, we, like, it reads so powerfully as this like the architect of the future explaining his vision of humans as this, you know, humans as a creature in that biblical sense that is capable of both good and evil and him trying to construct a pathway for humans to be able to, to express the good side of it, right? To let the evil go back on earth and expand out into the heavens and only take the good parts with them, right? Um, as part of his vision of, of what he wants to build for them, um, and yeah, like, I think like those elements, um, you know, as someone who is not a Christian, but like, I find those pieces of Christian mythology very compelling. I think this show like hits on those things really well. It's the kind of thing, like, if you like stuff like the book in the show is also pretty good, Good Omens, the Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett book, 
uh, that got turned into an Amazon show. Like it hits on a similar, like the angel devil stuff and hits like the similar ideas in a way that I think is very compelling, even to people who are not super steeped in like that whole world and what's going on there. Um, it's using that imagery and the substance behind it so effectively. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about mythologies here. You know, it, it, it's almost like your devoutness. That's not the purpose. We're talking about these yeah. as like myths and things that we build our understanding. Because myths are ways we process the world, right? That's how that's yeah. why they exist. Um, and so, yeah, it feels very true. Like if you literally, if you were to try to, you know, read Gundam Double O and all the like Aeolia, I can never say his name, Mr. Shuhenberg stuff. Mm -hmm. If you were to, you know, try to do that in a very literal way and be like, tie him i don't know to steve jobs or something like it would be patently ridiculous right and you yes. would say it's like weirdly patriarchal and all this stuff but you can't you you just can't that's not the point the point is a much more like he is distant and godlike and this one little flashback is the most extended look at him we get outside of the pi the first episode you know um that you know toru furia is as a voice is this thing that comes from the past and echoes through as this lucifer figure you know that's how you've you've kind of got to look at it and on that register it works very well yeah although now i am imagining alolia schuhenberg is like a steve jobs figure and instead his like statement in episode one of gundam double o he'd be wearing a turtleneck and walking around on stage with a laser pointer that'd be very different though yeah it'd be a different tv show but i'd, I'd watch that too and one more thing, no more war. Um, <laughs> yes. So I do want to, let's talk about the characters for just a little bit. Because I do, one thing I want to say is one thing I do like about, so like I said earlier, I think it, it goes a little overboard with trying to touch base with every character. And I think it uses some better than others. This is also a problem, by the way, the Full Metal Alchemist movie, also by Mizushima, has the same problem. I assume when they give them the budget for the movie, someone at the studio, you know, kind of nudges them in the ribs and says... You do have to get all the fan favorite characters in. We want the applause moments in the theater. And I have seen Conqueror of Shambhala, the Full Metal Alchemist movie, in a theater. It gets the applause moments. It's very good at it. And I think this movie probably did the same thing. Um, the Japanese people don't really applaud during movies. But if it showed an American movie theater, it would get those, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what I do think is, in general, I think this movie is good at knowing whose character arcs are settled. And we're not going to disrupt that. And whose character arcs are a living thing, and we should further that. So Sumeragi is a settled character. I don't think we need a lot with her. And so she is there, and she plays her role. But we don't need to, like, reopen that book, because we, we closed it. Uh, I think with Lock-On Stratos, is they do a great job with that. Of, like, Lock-On, uh, second Lock-On, uh, uh, Lyle Delandy has, like, so... We talked about him in Season 2. He's so complete as a character... Uh, and I do love just the like little touches at the beginning here where you see he and Setsuna have formed a pretty tight friendship at this point, mm -hmm. And they are very much partners in what they do now with Celestial Being. And I do just love that side of it because I love the, their whole relationship together is great. You know, Alulia, Alleluia and Hallelujah have just come to a fun. They are they call each other Ibo now and they, they are partners. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't need to reopen that book. Um, but Graham Aker, Mr. Bushido. His story is very unsettled. He was left in a place where he's transforming as a person. So you, you bring him back and you say, well, who is he now that he's taken the mask off? And he no longer goes by Mr. Bushido. And you see he has recommitted himself to be the man we saw in the beginning who is like a genuinely good captain who cares for his people and about doing the right thing. And he sees sight of that again. Um, and he is he goes from almost you know committing seppuku for no good reason at the end of the TV show to happily dying for the best reason he can imagine. 
you know? And great arc for that character that, like, makes me like Mr. Bushido even more than I already did. Phenomenal. Um, and then, of course, Setsuna is, I think, the most obvious example of that, who his character arc feels settled, I think, by the end of the TV show. But you come back to the movie and it makes sense. Oh, this dude evolved into an innovator and he's the only one. Yeah, he probably has some shit going on and we're mm. going to further that. And so I think the movie is pretty smart about all those things. Yeah, no, I think it does use its characters well. Um, I think it uses them generally efficiently. Because I would also add, like, because I know you said that you wish that there was, like, more for them in the movie. But I think I would kind of put them in this pile of, like, settled characters is Saji and Louise. Yeah. They also mostly use as, like, a way to um, dramatize some of, like, the early invasion stuff and to bring Setsuna in contact with um, the aliens for the first time that take on the form of ribbons or at least a ribbons type innovate or whatever that was like on the station in Jupiter. Um, but other than that, like they're basically settled, right? Like it, it right. is there, they are like witnesses with everybody else. And they use them kind of as like your civilian POV for a couple of moments. Um, but like, I think it is also smart that they don't try to open that up too much more because I think it would like complicate things so much. Yeah. It, that makes sense. Um, when you put it in my own framing, <laughs> I think you, uh, you're right. Um, I, I guess what I, I guess the only thing that like, and it's again, it's something where I need to watch the movie again. I think it's because Saji is the closest thing we have to an actual POV character in the show. That felt mm -hmm. like a little bit of a disconnect, but that's okay. The movie is its own thing. And I think you're right. I, and I do like seeing the like grown up Saji and the life he's leading and like seeing Luis and that they, they acknowledge like she wouldn't just be back to normal after what happened in the show. That's all good. Um, and yeah, and I think like the moment that probably sells it for me with all of this and all these characters is the big musical montage near the end mm -hmm. where you have Setsuna jumping between everybody and seeing them all. And so you see Saji out there on the space station working and he sees all of his, you know, companions in the battlefield and even some of his enemies. Um, and I think you feel like everyone is sort of in the right place for where they need to be. Yes. Yeah. That I think it uses those characters effectively. Yes. And for Saji specifically, I do really love when you see him in this like, it highlights how much his character has grown, right? That he, like, voluntarily runs out there to go help, like, on that space station they're on. And, like, he's repairing or whatever, like, the hole. And he's helping them out and, like, going out there and putting himself in danger and risking his life for other people. Um, and, yeah, and just, like, getting that. You see, you know, part of that is, like, Setsuna getting to see the impact he's had on other people's lives. But then also that's, like, there are all these relationships and people are connected um, and he sort of, like, refines himself in those relationships um, with all these people that he knows. Yeah, I think that, that that dynamic that they use the characters for is very powerful. Because it's kind of funny, when when we first meet, or when Setsuna first meets Saji and Luis here, and, and they have the fight with the, the metal ribbons all mark, I was totally expecting he would, like, take Saji and Luis back to the ship with him and be like, you'll be safer with us in space. Because that would just make sense, that's where they had been before, all this stuff. And instead, he leaves them there and they wind up being completely separate from him for the rest of the movie. And at first I thought, that's kind of a messy storytelling choice. And then I think when you see the thing at the end of like, okay, but Saji is in his like natural habitat and then he chooses to do the, the go into space and fight, right? Yeah. Um, and Setsuna gets to see that and see how those connections exist even when he is not in the proximate physical space of, of uh, Saji that's when it hits. And so I think it's absolutely the right choice. So I'm talking myself into, actually, I think it uses Saji and Louise pretty well. Yeah. Uh, even though, I think, I do think there's a, 
general dearth of good use of female characters in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. Luis is mostly screaming over the, the L's in her head. Sumeragi is kind of backgrounded. Um, Felt is probably the most dynamic, but Felt does have at least 90% of her dialogue is looking at Setsuna and saying, Setsuna? Yeah, she, and that's yeah like, she gets Rolina'd a little bit, for sure. Yes. Um, she still gets some goods. I think they like there's an upswing with her at the very end of the movie. Um, but yeah, that's she does get a little Rolina'd. Um, but yeah, overall, it's it's good. Marie kicks some fucking ass in this movie. I do like Marie in the background. Just she is she is herself. She and Alleluia are a good team. I love that they're always like they just they own that Gundam together and they do their shit together. It's that's that's a good dynamic. Yeah, I particularly like with them that when they launch for like the last fight that you know he says like you know Alleluia Haptism and uh, Soma Purus launching and that he's still like I like that. It's even though you don't spend that much time like addressing it, like because they don't, you know, Marie and Soma don't have the like we're two voices in the same head talking to each other thing that Hallelujah has with Hallelujah. It's still clear that like their identities, it's not like one of them has taken over for the other. It's like they are like a fused entity that it's she's both Marie and Soma Pierce at the same time. Like I like that like subtle, um, yeah. kind of distinction they make. It's a very good clear understanding of character. Um, speaking of Saji, because I don't know where else we're going to talk about this, I do love Saji's introduction to the movie, which is watching yes. a movie version of the events of the end of Gundam Double O. Um, it's like the beginning of the fucking third Austin Powers movie, where you have the Hollywood version of Austin Powers being made with like Tom Cruise, but this time it's it's in the Gundam verse. It's like a a heightened anime version of what is already a heightened anime. It is very funny, just as a little parody of like how Gundam actually exists in the world. I enjoyed that a whole hell of a lot. Yes, yeah, that is a great scene because, yeah, it's basically like, what if you turned, what if you fused the ending of Char's Counterattack, the ending of Season 1 of Double Gundam, and the ending of Season 2 of Double Gundam into a, like, super robot show, you know, Voltron (laughs) style or whatever. Um, That's basically what that movie is. Like, they have, it's a great cameo by, uh, like, one-time petty villain Alejandro Cross in his big dumb golden mobile suit from the end of the first season where it almost feels like they picked that shit so that they could make fun of it in this movie yes um and yes and I I love that so much my favorite shot is when they have the like um like the full team shot where all four of the fake uh Gundam Meisters like cut in and you see like they have someone who is like it like vaguely looks like Setsuna, like if it was Captain Harlock from if people know what Captain Harlock is, another like manga anime series of the you know, he's got like a scar. I think he, I don't know if he I love he's got has, the scar on his face, it's great. Yeah, he's got the scar. I don't know if he actually has an eye patch, but he definitely has like his hair over one of his eyes and he has like that whole like dramatic look. Um, and then like the other three are just completely off base, including one of them that looks like she's like a, like a, it's like, like there's like a 12 year old girl or something instead of Alleluia. And it's like, this is very good. This is very, well, it looked funny. like, I thought it was supposed to be like Nina Trinity is what it looked like. Like sure. just a totally mixed up detail. It's a girl with pink hair. It's great. Yeah. It's yeah. It's just very, it's a very funny scene. And then the other part I like about it is like, I, I, I won because so this movie, if you have not seen the TV show would be completely unwatchable. Like there's no way right. you'd be able to make any sense of anything because it just does not bother to introduce the characters to you, which is, I think the right choice because it, this movie would end up being like two and a half to three hours long if it had to do all of that too. Um, so, but I do like that. It, it just like throws this vague random bone at the beginning of the movie of like, if here's, here's what got us to the, the celestial beings, a thing. 
and there are some people. It's like I love the <laughs> idea of imagining, you know, you were someone who really loved Double O Gundam, and but you had a friend who had never seen it, and you're like, oh well, I want to go watch the movie, and they're like, oh sure, I'll watch it with you. I haven't really seen the TV show, and just imagining someone who has not seen the source material watching this movie and that because that is the moment where movies do the and here's like the little thing that kind of reintroduces you into the universe that will give a new audience member the bare essentials and it's like you would not be able to uh, go very far into this movie with the essentials that they give you in that little intro scene nope yeah that would be funny i also love saji sitting there with his friend and saji being like I was there. It didn't happen like this. And the friend just being like, oh man, this is crazy. And the friend doesn't know that Saji was there for what is being depicted. It's great. Yes. Yeah. I like, like he like very quietly says like, I think they glorified it a little bit. Don't all movies do that? He's like, yeah, sure. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's very funny. <laughs> Okay, where where do you want to take this next, Sean? Um, let's let's talk about Setsuna, I guess. Let's talk about our our, our protag, our our Gundam boy, Gundam our metal boy, boy. To be, yeah, our metal boy, our metal Gundam boy. Yeah. So yeah, so Setsuna. Um, so you know they they do an interesting thing here where, and I think felt like they they sort of narrativeize it. They pull it into the narrative that like Setsuna feels like he's almost kind of regressed as a character in a way that he is more standoffish and aloof in the way that he was in a lot of season one only now of course it's for a different reason so he is our one innovator and it's kind of like it feels like they're pulling some of that material from the end of the original mobile suit gundam with amuro whereas amuro grows more into his new typeness he ends up kind of pushing all of his friends away because he's different and he feels weird things and he can sense stuff before it happens and he's kind of like spacing out in weird moments um, and so that's kind of where we meet Setsuna at the beginning. And I kind of remember the first time I watched the movie being a little bit disappointed by that because I think when I didn't know where the movie was going, I feel like this is something that a lot of movies based on TV shows end up doing is they end up resetting characters to like the most iconic point in their character development rather than continuing off from like where you feel like you left them. Um, and so I remember being kind of annoyed by it first time I watched the movie and then on rewatching it, I think it's such a powerful choice because one, it does narratively make sense that he is the only innovator. He is kind of alone in this stuff and he's kind of lost sight of all of that. But when you know that's like, that's what the movie is about is it is about this like big dramatization of kind of in some ways a like really core condensed version of and symbolic version of what you saw in a more protracted character development kind of way for Setsuna in the TV show. And here it's a lot of those same ideas, but expressed in this much more kind of um, artistic -y, emotional, symbolic manner where he starts the movie. And I love this moment where I didn't think much of it, or I wouldn't have thought much of it the first time I watched the movie, but it's really good, um, like kind of script writing and, and sort of like narrative pacing is your introduction to Setson into this movie is this little armed intervention he and Lock-On make as uh, Marina and her crew are attacked by the colonist people because they're trying to get their refugees back who were displaced forcibly by the previous administration to work on these colonies. And so they're trying to give them passage back to their home in the Middle East. And then the, the colony corporation attacks them. Um, and so then Lock-On Stratus comes out of nowhere and Setson is piloting the ship. And Lock-On says, like, hey, do you want to say hello? 
and says is like no we don't need to do that and he just leaves and goes back to um the ptolemaeus and that scene i think the first time you watch it it only registers as like here's your reintroduction to the characters you like kind of know what to sort of expect it feels like it's maybe set up to reintroduce marina um and to sort of establish that this is what celestial being has been doing in the meantime that they are doing armed interventions but they're doing them kind of on the sly or on the down low right we're not advertising big gundam stuff we're doing little ones here and there predicted by veda but really what it's doing is setting up the ending of the movie right you're getting your starting point your temperature check on setsuna that setsuna is so fixated on his own bullshit that he can't see this like he should be reaching out to the people around him right that's like he has fought hard and won this piece and he should be using that opportunity to connect to the people that he cares about and cares about him. But instead he does this very sets in a thing of very coldly saying, no, we don't need to do that. Let's just go. Um, and I love that contrast of him there compared to sets at the end of the movie after his revelation in the, his vision he has and him embracing felt to him embracing Maria at the end of the movie. I think it's like a very effective kind of circular storytelling thing they do there. I agree. And and actually, you know, I was prepared when I sort of saw this direction. I was like, hmm, is this... I had the same thought you were describing there. Of like, on a first viewing, is this working? But I was actually sold on it pretty quickly. And I think it's a couple of subtle things. I think part of it is that even as he has, quote-unquote, regressed, the way Mamoru Miyano plays it vocally mm -hmm. sounds like Setsuna evolved. Like, every, like, even when he's, like, kind of closed off, like, when there's several moments where people are asking him, like, what's going on? He's like... I don't know. I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know why I'm not attacking these aliens. Just like the way he says it, he is more, he's using like the kind of vocal qualities of the more adult communicative Setsuna. Setsuna is not closed off because he like hates these people and any of that. Like it's, it's because he doesn't understand his own feelings. So it feels like it's, it's quiet, but it's a more mature kind of quiet than little boy Setsuna had in season one. Mm -hmm. I also think there are moments like I talked a lot about this in our season two podcast at the end of that show he feels like the leader of celestial being. He still does in this show. Yes. Like when he comes on the bridge and he talks, everyone listens. And there are several moments where he kind of like throws out an order and then they do it. And so it feels like he has changed, but not regressed. Like his character is progressing. This phase of his character is more like quiet and reserved, but not to me feeling like in the way he was when we meet him in season one. This feels like an extension of season two sets in a... Um, I think the character design helps with that too. Um, I do think it's pretty cool that this is a show where you have to do like three character designs for all the main characters because they all age up over the course of things. I guess Lock-On never looks that different, but like Setsuna has three very distinct phases. Um, I think Alleluia, they age up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you yeah, know, Alleluia has Saji. that. Alleluia went with the ponytail. He's got a ponytail yes. for this movie instead of all the long hair. <laughs> and then yes, yeah, Saji... Like, it's particularly Setsuna and Saji have, like, the most dramatic, right. like, it is that thing where you look at them as, like, especially because they do, in the flashback, you see, or not a flashback, but the vision, you see little kid Setsuna again, and you get that yeah. direct contrast of, like, right, fuck, holy shit, like, he's, he's like, a grown man now, right? He's, he's in his early 20s, um, so it's, it's, yeah, that, like, progress where, you're so just accustomed to watching a bunch of 14-year-olds all the time in Gundam that it is very nice to see this as, like, no, he's grown up. Like, he's an adult. Like, he's, you know, he's Amaro in Zeta or as far as Counterattack. You get a little bit more of that, that feeling from him. Um, and, yes, and, and a lot of that does also come down to 
uh, Miano's like really expert performance that he finds a slightly different like space for, I feel like for the voice to sit. Um, so yeah, that even when he's being more standoffish, it's always clear to the audience that it is for different reasons um, that he is processing things and he's dealing with different things than he did when he was standoffish in season one. His, you know, care for the people around him still shines through in a way mm -hmm. where, you know, season one sets now, if Alleluia got blown up in front of him, I don't know, he's too emotionally broken to care about that. You never doubt that that is something he would move heaven and earth to stop in the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Setsuna, still a great Gundam character, one of the best Gundam boys, and the only metal Gundam boy. Yes. He's, man, he's he's my boy, yeah. I, I, I adore him as a protagonist. Should so, we so talk about, yeah, speaking of metal, let's, should we just talk more about the L's and, and how they are introduced and used mm -hmm. throughout this movie? Yeah, so, I love this shit so fucking much. It's just such, it's not, you know, a purely original alien concept like i said it's it's somewhat similar to stuff you see in godzilla 2000 it's obviously a little bit inspired by the t1000 as well um you know your whole liquid metal thing um but i i love two things about them one is i just think like as a creature it serves as such a potent metaphor for everything that the show is dealing with with trying to understand each other of like destroying each other in your attempt to understand one another it's reflection of the things it comes into contact with um, it's like pure alienness, right? That it's not, you know, and especially since it's anime, it's much easier to do it this way than if you're doing this, the live action thing would be insanely expensive to do. So that's one of the reasons why in live action, just like paint someone green and they're an alien and you're good, or you put like a puppet um, here, you have this utterly alien concept of a race um, that lives in the heart of gas giants. I love that they, they're, they're not originally from Jupiter, but they're from a Jupiter-esque planet. And so they went here and ended up here and are living in Jupiter. And so that's just a cool alien concept that's like, they don't even live on like terrestrial planets. Um, they are so far outside the concept of what we would normally consider to be life. Um, and so all that is rad. The other thing I love about them is what they allow to do for in terms of action. It feels like something that they you know, they could not have done this on the TV show just purely from a budgetary standpoint. There's so much complexity in what happens in the action scenes. There's so much movement happening all the time because of the sheer volume of these uh, things and how many different shapes and forms they take. It is something that just like feels expensive in terms of animation budget while you're watching it because it just it seems it's the kind of thing that like, you can't reuse stuff or find like a lot, use a lot of like your cheap kind of outs that animation uses all the time to sort of like make things easier. Here, this feels like something that on a TV budget, a lot of these action scenes, it just would not have been feasible. Um, and so it feels like they are using the full range of their movie budget to achieve a concept that like you just would not have been able to do anything like this uh, on a TV, on the TV version. Uh, absolutely. It's so good. Um, I. <laughs> I, and there's kind of multiple phases of it, right? So you have when they're like just rocks at the beginning. And sometimes they're rocks that like spurt out of people. But you're not sure what more they are than that. You have the entire phase where they are just literally invisible. And controlling like the... Not controlling the cars. They are becoming the cars we come to learn. But we don't know are these like... Like at first, this, I just knew there were aliens. I didn't know what form they were going to take. And at first I was wondering like, can we not see them? And that's why they're like driving the cars. And so you get some very 
fun inventive action sequences like Alleluia and Marie's introduction to the movie basically is them being chased by those cars and there's some really good stuff there yeah um but yeah as it goes along like every basically every space battle in this movie is more visually ambitious than the one before it as the L's are like introduced to us and they take on more forms and they do more shit um and yeah it's I like what you said about it being something that feels like movie-esque. I love that they picked something like that that very c- firmly distinguishes this as a movie. You could not do this on the TV show, even a TV show as phenomenally well animated as Gundam 00. And that is what, you know, makes this feel like the the movie theatrical. This is This would be very cool to go see in a theater, you know? Yeah, because you just have in that last fight, you just have some of those like cuts that are unfucking believable. Where yeah, you yeah. have like I think maybe my favorite one is Alleluia, like flying his ship as like the whole train of the elves is following him, and he's just firing missiles behind him, and so it's just this explosion of lights. Um, it's and yeah, there's just a lot of really powerful like frenetic movement. Um, and yeah, it just feels like they. They just fucking go hardcore on just animating every little detail of, like, the undulating surfaces and the elves as they, like, shift and they transform into things and the massive volume of them. It's it's just really, really phenomenal stuff. That's great. I love that cut you talked about. I feel like all of the shield bits on Lock-On's Gundam, they were mm-hmm. made for this. As yeah. cool as they were in the series, they were made for fighting these fucking elves because they are used so well. He basically has the same kind of wings that um, Amuro has uh, in, uh, in in the, with the Gundam... Ne- uh, what's it called? The new the, Gundam? The new Gundam in uh, in, in Shara's counterattack and is using those and they look so cool. Uh, I think this uses CGI really well yeah. um, because CGI in anime is a fraught topic that we will not solve today uh, because that's a much bigger discussion. We will um, talk about that in with Kimetsu no Yaiba uh, when we do that podcast. We'll talk about how you use digital stuff in animation uh, phenomenally well. Yes, no, it's it's a really big discussion and there's a lot to go into here. Um, but something that I think Gundam 00 makes the right choice on is that they where they use the CGI is for like the L's like when they are being like liquid metal and like consuming things. And it's a perfect use of CGI. It is not one of those like take you out of the movie, this is like rendering at a low grade that today in 2021 we wouldn't use. Because of the kind of surface it's doing, it's a timeless use of CGI. It's something that you couldn't do by hand. It doesn't really need texture, so it doesn't have to be good CGI. It just has to move right on the images. And so it's integrated very, very well. Like the the kind of I'm gonna I, I will introduce this when we do our Kometsu no Yaiba podcast. There's a theory that a scholar has of animatic versus cinematic movement and these are like two different spaces anime can use and cgi and live action stuff moves more towards the cinematic and it's about depth um gundam 00 is still 100 percent on the more animatic side of things where it's more about the kind of flat side compositional view um but the cgi is integrated into that extraordinarily well um and just again gives you this sense of of the the true alienness of these things we're looking at yeah, absolutely. It's utterly phenomenal. Um, I, it's just such a creative, interesting, compelling kind of enemy. And especially like, you know, doing this podcast, you know, we talk about like Gundam on Gundam fights all the time because it's what most of the action scenes are. But I love that like the only other action sequence that I can think of in the all of Gundam that is even similar to the stuff you see in this movie is the ending of Gundam F91 and the bugs from F91, which feel like whether it's a direct inspiration or not, it's a similar concept of this like a noble kind of 
grossly alien, you know, they're machines, but they're, they feel like sadistic in their intelligence of the bugs in F91. And it's just this massive swarm and quantity of them is the danger. It's the only other time Gundam has ever done this kind of action scene. Um, so it just feels so fresh to see it when I love the action yeah. Gundam all the time, but you get to know the pace and the style and like the structure of those mobile suit fights here. It feels like they're doing stuff that's just totally different. Yes, and I'm glad you brought up F91 because that's one of my favorite action scenes in all of Gundam is the stuff with the bugs at the end of F91. And this has that similar quality of you're not really fighting the bugs. You're like running from them. You are trying to survive and you're trying to do something that will make them destroy themselves almost. And so most of the action in this movie is so frenetic because it's not like there's a thing they are directly firing at and punching. It is this infinity of things you knock one head down seven heads will emerge you are running from them you are trying to like get them to hit each other and blow up there's all sorts of strategies the different Gundam Meisters and other pilots like Graham Aker are trying to use to like fight these things you have like I know we hate Andre and he's a stupid douchebag, but the scene where he dies is like really cool in its mm -hmm. animation. And like, it is just this, like he's has to use the trans am to just like cut this thing apart and it winds up killing him because he has to get too close and it, it, you know, integrates with him and all of that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very, very unique. It looks like nothing in Gundam double O, but it also looks like nothing in Gundam in general, other than that F91 thing. And as our third Gundam movie, this also means it's not trying like, you can't top the action in Char's Counterattack in F91. I'm sorry. It does not matter how big a budget you have, how great the digital animation tools are. The storyboarding and the cuts and the animation quality is just too good in those movies to ever top. So, if you're making the next Gundam movie, don't. Do something different. And they do. This doesn't have action remotely like those movies, really. Other than the sense, I think, there is a certain sense, like in Char's Counterattack, of just the sheer scale of the battle going on here but it's a completely different kind of battle uh and so it doesn't you're not watching this comparing it to other Gundam things which is always I mean fuck this is this was the 31st anniversary of the show it is hard to make a Gundam thing where you're not watching it comparing it to five other Gundam things and they find a way to do it yeah um because then the other thing with like that visual element with the else um that I love is that they um it's near the end like the grandiosity of them is so powerful and that's like some of the most gorgeous stuff in this movie like that sequence where the like massive sphere like their ship or like the core because it's yes. also like because i feel like you don't even at the end of the movie really fully understand what they are as like a life form is it a hive mind do they have individuality like what are they really so it's like i don't know what that giant sphere is uh to the else but that rising out of the red eye the like the, the giant storm on jupiter um it is like just one of the coolest fucking things I've ever seen in an anime. Like, it's such a gorgeous shot. And the just the fucking clouds of Else that, like, with, like, beams shooting through them and the clouds di dispersing, like, they're fluid or they're made of, like, vapor. Um, there's just the, the immensity of it. Um, and this almost, like, they look like nebula or something, you know? This, this like, very sort of um, primal like early universe kind of imagery that they use to represent them almost uh, I think is just so evocative and so striking absolutely uh, I also I love and I applaud that they keep up the Jupiter stuff because there's mm -hmm. a long history in Gundam from Zeta Gundam and our boy Paptima Shiroko 
that weird shit comes from Jupiter. And you get it there, and you get it in Gundam F91, and Crossbone Gundam gives it to you good, because Jupiter gets its full moment in the sun in Crossbone Gundam, which, yes, we will talk about one day. Um, and then you get it here. I just love that they go to, like, yes, if there is something weird and unexplainable, it does, in fact, come from Jupiter. Uh, and so here you go. It happens again. And honestly, this is maybe the best in terms of just pure images, Jupiter stuff that Gundam has ever done. I agree with you about that moment where it's coming out of the red spot on Jupiter. When you have like the moons of Jupiter, like Io getting sucked into it and the rings are like detaching and collapsing. Oh, it is so fucking cool. Yeah. And, and I do, Jonathan, I have to correct you uh, a little bit because you said the weird stuff from Jupiter starts with Zeta Gundam. It does not. It starts with the original Gundam because that's where my boy Shalia Bull, the new type Shalia Bull, right. he is from Jupiter. So it goes back all the way to the fucking <laughs> tap, baby. Uh, it is it is weird shit is out in Jupiter. And yes, this is for me, this is the best weird shit in Jupiter. Like maybe in like science fiction, like Jupiter's like a really... I think, like, aesthetically interesting planet. Like, you know, it's the biggest planet in in our solar system, obviously. But it's just, like, the swirling storms of the surface, surface of Jupiter. Um, it's just such a, like, I think, like, artistically interesting-looking planet to me. But all of our aliens always come from fucking Mars. And it's like, Mars is a big, red, dead rock. Um, Jupiter just, it feels so much more mysterious. Um, and, yeah, like, just, like, the notion that there are there's this, like hive of like synthetic or i don't like silicon based whatever like these like crystalline life forms living deep under the surface of a gas giant planet like that's just a fucking sick concept um that just lends to this really beautiful science fiction imagery that they have yeah absolutely the i do think when i like really started to turn on the movie and was on the edge of my seat like i need to see how this plays out was when the jupiter stuff starts and you see the planet and oh god it's so good yes um, yeah. But let's let's back up a little bit and talk because that was the one of the things I liked about the else was you know that that sort of the visual component they have, but let's also talk about like the else as like you know going back to our symbolism stuff and and what it represents um, the else as like this sort of the kaiju of our kaiju movie and what it kind of says about humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I mean, there's there's the obvious level of symbolism of they are bonding two things and they are trying to understand through destruction. And that is, of course, a heightened version of what Double O is about, you know, throughout its run. Um, but then they are also, you know, completely alien and foreign within that. And the process of understanding becomes inherently violent. And that is also part of what Double O is about. Um, so, but, but you probably have more formed thoughts on this, Sean, because you've actually seen this twice and lived with it. Mm -hmm. um, for me, a lot of it is just, you know, so much of like the first hour of this movie, especially, is just keeping up with like what these things are. And I think you, it's part of the thing about this movie that I still have questions about its pacing, I think, because I think maybe it takes a little too long to kind of kick you into the t sense of like, read these things symbolically, please. Um, and and but but again, I don't know if I would feel that if I saw it a second time. So yeah, yeah, because I guess like because one of the things that they do is I think they hit on the like humanity's like reliance on like the technology piece, right? So they start out as emulating pieces of technology like cars and trucks, and then over the course of the movie, as humanity wraps ramps up their military response to the else, the else absorb and become the military you use to fight them right so it becomes this like very direct metaphor for you know violence 
begets violence, right? That like your armed response is going to incur an equivalent response from whoever you are fighting specifically with the elves. So that sequence at the end of the movie where they have been these like shapeless kind of forms for a lot of the movie, or they like turn into like vaguely alien looking ships or like missiles almost. And then they, and then they start absorbing our missiles and start turning into like what looks like human missiles. Um, and then at the end in that big fight, they start turning into mobile suits and then they start turning into capital ships. Um, and they start becoming exactly our military response. And I think that that like direct like confrontation with like weapons technology and military technology as this thing that because this is what we give them, it's what they become. And so it reflects on the like violent instincts of humanity. And it's like one of the reasons why I think when, you know, looking at the first encounter that Setsuna has with them, I suspect that that's like one of the reasons why Setsuna doesn't know how to respond to them is because he knows like in his bones as an innovator, like he understands the more violence we use against them, the more violence they're going to give back to us. It's like the more we put into them, the more they're going to put back out to us. So we need to figure out a different way to resolve this conflict. Um, and he can't figure it out until the end of the movie. But that reflective quality of them, I think, is like really powerful at delivering that theme that is a part of Double O Gundam. But I think it's just like generally like with Gundam's interest in the way that the advancement of military technology creates an advancement in like militaristic desires and violence and the destruction caused by war and conflict. There's an interesting thread at the beginning of this movie that sort of gets dropped for obvious reasons, but you have the president of the Federation having conversations about this like sort of extremist group out in space that we see Marina fighting against, you know, um, and you have that failed assassination attempt that that celestial being stops, and and they use the word conciliation. They are having a conciliatory policy towards them of like they are trying to stop the violence, but not by enacting violence on them specifically. And that is sort of a preview of everything that is to come because what Marina does in that first scene where she like has the gun on her but tries to talk the gunman down. And after Lock-On comes in and saves her, she still goes over to him and tries to, like, give him peace and understanding and empathy. That is a little synecdoche of what mm. the actual right way to deal with the, um, with the else is, right? And that is ultimately, to me, why Marina and Setsuna are able to have their moment of understanding at the end of the film. Because they ultimately wound up taking the same approach. Uh, yeah. He does it on a much bigger, more metaphysical scale in the end. But it's the same idea they are both having there. And you see the government having this discomfort with a conciliation policy. Because they don't, for understandable reasons, like what would that look like politically is a giant question, right? Um, and like what tools, you know, if you have a toolbox with a hammer and nails, you're going to see things as things to be nailed into, you know? Um, and so this is, it's only been two years. The entire world hasn't changed that much. They're trying to figure this out. And when push comes to shove and they meet the aliens, eh, the conciliation policy goes out the window pretty quick. It becomes a fight or flight response. And it's something I really like in this movie. There is not a villainous human character in this movie. There is not the person, sometimes kaiju movie do this, mm -hmm. where you have the dumbass in the corner who's like, if we just fire enough nukes, we'll be okay. And they fuck up everything because they're firing too many nukes. 
Nobody looks stupid or unreasonable in this movie. Like, you know, you have, like, one of your main militaristic characters fighting the elves is Caddy Mannequin, who we know is a good person and, like, does is in things for the right reasons and sometimes was on the wrong side. But, you know, she made the right decisions by the end of that show and helped everyone out. And she is in this for the right reasons. And the movie is not condemning her for wanting to fight the elves because it knows that's a very reasonable human thing to think that if this thing is coming in and tearing bodies apart with all this metal stuff, that you will have that fight or flight response of we have to fight back. And so Setsuna's transformation beyond the human is really that transformation beyond those basic instincts, right? That transformation beyond seeing things as enemies to be fought and trying for something completely different at the end of this movie. And that's what being an innovator ultimately is and ultimately means it is look their their word choice is not subtle here it is an innovation to be able to do radically what humans are clumsily trying to do at the beginning of this movie which is peace and conciliation which does not come natural to us not because we are inherently bad but for reasons that we understand and empathize with. The movie is not judgmental. Like, that's part of why the movie has an interesting view of humanity, is it is not a nihilistic view of humanity there, but it is a view of where, you know, what are the things that hold us back and what are the innovations that we need to make to actually have these kinds of peace and understanding. And that's what this movie is actualizing through through all of this. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things it then does using all of that is it's, the other thing that like the else function as which is this is your like very standard kaiju construction is that the kaiju is some represents or embodies in some way for much of the movie a like monstrous version of the thing that the protagonist is struggling with right or it has to confront in like that side of the film and so for setsuna setsuna's whole arc in the movie is trying to like understand things um, and he's he's pursuing it really doggedly at the same time forgetting all the people around him, right? And so that's part of his relationship with Felt is that Felt is very earnestly trying to build a connection with Setsuna and Setsuna is just sort of coldly blocking that out because he's just sort of blind to it even though he's supposed to be the person who is seeking out that empathy and seeking out that kind of connection. He can't see it because he's too focused on these bigger picture ideas and so then when confronted with the else and him trying to understand them, they are this monstrous version of like, they're so far outside his realm of understanding, right? That like literally the amount of information he receives in trying to empathize with them, like damages his brain because they are this unknowable alien life form that like they have a hive mind or whatever it is. Um, There's so much to what they are that he as a single human can't even really process um and so yeah like they represent that in that moment where he confronts them in the middle of the movie and is sort of turned comatose is this inability to understand made manifest as a monster that then he is only able to overcome them because then he has this revelation of that there are these people out here that he has made these connections he has touched saji's life and lock life and marina's life and then he's also then holds felt's hand um, and reaches out to the the flower she gives him in his his vision. Um, and so, yeah, that's the other, like, really, I think, effective thing that the elves come to function in the plot is they actualize Setsuna's character arc by becoming this external, exaggerated version of it. That scene is so good, where he is in the coma, and he has this whole flash of his entire life from being a kid killing his parents 
on through all of these major moments. You have, once again, we see the old lock-on Stratos, um, Neil Delandy, uh, Neil and Lyle, our, our boys, yep. um, you know, saying the line about, you have to change. And I love that that line still has meaning in this movie because that change, you know, I like that the change he makes in the show is ultimately not the one. Like, there's more to it. There's what you do with that change, which is what this movie is in the next step of that story, right? Mm-hmm. Um but it's a great sequence, and I think even if Felt does get a little marinad uh, or Berlinad in, um, you know, saying Setsuna so many times, um, the moment where you know she's got his hand and he reaches out for her, and it's beautiful, it's perfect. It's like it's such a great payoff to this character who has been around the entire series, and this sort of subtle relationship with Setsuna that has built up, um, extremely well done. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it is one of the best parts of the movie and that's where you also get the the insert song uh yes. like basically nothing is scary anymore like mo nanimo kwaku Nai, um by chiaki ishikawa who did one of the other songs i don't remember which one she did from she Demo do Gino. love today i think is... um i think that's it yeah um, yeah i can look it up right now yeah because um, yeah. i ha- have them all on my phone um but yes i am uh cur- well let's see she did the song prototype okay um, yeah no, she didn't do Love Today, but Prototype is hers. Yeah. Okay, ending. yeah. So she did the first ending to the second season. Yeah. So she, yeah. that song, um, which which that song has been in my like anime song playlist forever, but I could never remember. I remember that it was in Double O Gundam somewhere, but I couldn't remember what part. And I had like <laughs> forgotten that it hadn't even come up watching the TV show. So when that started playing, um, particularly like the beginning of that song is like it just has such a very memorable opening to me and I was like oh my god right this song I totally forgot that it hadn't popped up yet um, I remember liking the song so much and it's like oh fuck it was the insert song in the movie and what a damn good fucking insert song and sequence oh, it's, a, it's a stunning moment it's a great sequence it's you know it's effectively the climax to the cast as it is because from that point on you're with Setsuna and his evolution and, you know, the final moments will be with Marina. Um, so that's kind of our last big substantive glimpses of a lot of these characters. Other than, we forgot to talk, can we just, I know I already mentioned him, but can we just say like five more words about Mr. Graham Aker? Yes. And, and his beautiful, beautiful ending here? Because, God, he is so excited to die and I love it. Yeah, no, it's a great, I love his like circular character arc of where he like, has kind of come around back to like an evolved version of what he was for a lot of season one, like particularly the beginning of season one of Gundam before his interactions with Setsuna and the Gundam sort of like distorted his life um, where it's like, he's like the cool good guy captain of the team. Right. Um, and he's no longer, you know, he, he has cast aside the Mr. Bushido. Like I really want the like Spider-Man two dream sequence of I'm Mr. Bushido no more. And he throws the mask <laughs> in the trash, right? Um, because it seems like that's, that happened to him at some point in the past. Um, but yeah, that he he is here um, now living out the message that sets in the left him at the end of season two, which is don't fight in order to die, fight in order to live. And I love that Graham, so he references a line he says in season one um, about celestial being being like contradictory. And he says to... Setsuna in the end, like before he sacrifices sacrifices himself, like be like the contradiction, like you you are that contradiction, like embrace it. Um, as Setsuna, I have it right failing. here. Failing, yeah, yeah. He, he says, "Why does your heart falter? You should be saying that you're fighting for the sake of living. To continue that existence filled with contradictions, that's what it means to live." 
go forth, young man. You'll live and blaze a trail to the future. Yes, because he is the trail blazer, is uh, as Setsuna F. Say, and he has awakened. Um, yeah, so he says, like, em- like be those contradictions, embrace the contradictions, because that is what it means to live. And then right after he says that, basically, he goes, he flies in and he, like, sacrifices himself saying, like, this isn't dying. I have it. Yeah. He says, young man, it. shonen, I, Grammaker, shall guarantee that you pilot into the future. This isn't dying. This is living for the survival and future of mankind. Yeah, which is, of course, a contradiction because he is dying, but he's living hes living his life the best he can um, in his own contradictory fashion. I think it's just such a strong, like, resolution to his character um, that is, yeah, that, that is to me one of, like, the big memorable stand-up moments of the movie. And it's where, um, because I, I definitely, like, if I had not already known that he has this scene at the end of the movie, I think I would have been more bummed at season two, like, on that podcast. I would have been more like, oh, I think we needed more of Mr. Bushido. But I knew we're getting, we're getting the conclusion that Graham Aker deserves uh, in the movie. Because he also has, you know, because he's not in the movie much, just like Graham Aker in the TV show. He doesn't have that much screen time, but every fucking second he has is, like, some of the best shit. Um, because yes. he also has the scene where he um, where Setsuna is comatose and he comes up um, and talks to Felt and talks about his relationship with Setsuna, um, and which is just a very powerful moment to me of him. Like, this relationship that they have where they are, like, apart for so much, they have very little interaction. And yet is like, to me, like, the most meaningful character relationship in this whole fucking series is Graham and Setsuna. At the end... I don't think Setsuna even knows his name because when when Graham dies, Setsuna just says that man basically, Hanoko, um, and and like dot dot dot, um, and he knows who Graham is, but like their relationship is like they were never friends. He never knew his name. Graham never. I don't know if he ever finds out Setsuna's name because he always calls him Shonen because that's a cool thing to call your protagonist in the Gundam show. Um, and and this like relationship they have, this weird rivalry that kind of transcends that relationship uh it's one of the best like rival pilot relationships in gundam because it's so unique and it's so powerful and yeah graham flying in sacrificing himself so so the shonen could go fly in and save the day uh very powerful man very good boy and like with marina it's you know this is a trilogy of stories and it's built around like these tripartite structures so season one ends with graham and uh, uh, Setsuna having this big confrontation that ends in them kind of blowing each other up, which throws them into season two. Season two, their big moment at the end is is Setsuna very easily, honestly, overtaking Graham and giving him this lesson. And then, not season three, but part three, the movie, is this final confrontation where they're not fighting, they're helping each other. But Graham is able to th- show that he has actually fully learned from this. And in learning from this, helps pave the way to Setsuna's future. That Setsuna would not be able to complete what he tells us is the purpose of his life if he had not had these interactions with Graham Aker because he would never get into that sphere. Um, Again, the planning and structure of this thing is really fucking good. Absolutely, yeah. And and Graham Aker, Mr. Bushido, whatever he wants to go by, he's, he's one of my favorites. He's just so... Like, it's just this character where it's hard for me to even, like, pin down why he's so memorable and so effective. He just is. Like, every single moment he's on screen, like, when he comes flying into the rescue in this movie is, like, a really great... If you were in the movie theater, you'd stand up and cheer and everyone would be clapping yes. because, because Graham Aker has shown up to save the day. Um, 
he's just so fucking cool. He's so fucking cool. Um, his flag in this movie is probably my favorite mobile suit he pilots. It is a sick ass fucking mobile suit. I mm-hmm. love it. Uh, I mean, everything is, this is just Gundam 00 is such an embarrassment of riches on the mobile suit front. It just like tosses off great designs that could be the centerpiece of any other Gundam show. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Cause everybody gets a new mobile suit in this movie and they're all good. Like some of them, like, uh, lock-ons is not super different from his old one, but some of them like right. the Quanta and, um, Tieria's new mobile suit, the Raphael, um, is, yeah, like, there's some, like, killer designs that only show up in this movie. We didn't mention Tieria. Tieria gets an interesting use in this, where they do bring back his body, but briefly. He's there for a couple scenes in body form. He lets himself die again to save Setsuna, and then he is just a part of Veda. I like that they kind of... They didn't just try to reset it and have like all four Gundam boys together again. Like he is, he has ascended the way he does at the end of the series, and that doesn't get reversed here. Uh, and I do love that he and Setsuna have become buddies enough that they go off into the great beyond together. Yeah, that's one of my favorite moments. I think that's like a really key choice they make in the movie is that Setsuna very specifically does not save the day alone. Um, yes. And I think it's important that that. It is like the most combative relationship he had within the Gundam Meisters in season one was with Tieria, who like, you know, Tieria said multiple times, Setsuna is not fit to be a Gundam Meister. Um, and then now it's fucking Setsuna and Tieria, like Cortana in Halo as a little hologram man in his yes. mobile suit, right? Um, and they go off to go save the aliens together. Um, and yeah, like, like it's, yeah, Tieria's role in this movie is very interesting because also it's, Tyria's like transcendence of humanity feels like it also kind of reflects a little bit of what the elves are too and i like that parallelism that like for Tyria, a body is just a body and i feel like you get that sense with the elves even though you don't like know for sure you get the sense of like their individuality is not contained in these like single ships or entities or the trucks they turn into like it doesn't feel like they are getting killed when the mobile suits blow up the trucks it's evolved into it feels like it's some sort of larger hive entity or something like that right um, that i feel like Tyria sort of like exists in a similar way to them um which is partially how he can process all the information they give setsna it's so smart because, you know, I, I saw, you know, I got my Blu-ray box in front of me and I've got the poster, which, by the way, the the theatrical poster art for Gundam 00 is a phenomenal illustration and I mm-hmm. really want that poster on my wall. I need to see if I can find a print of that because it is a terrific movie poster. Um, but, you know, I saw, I'm like, oh, uh, you know, Thierry is on this. He does not have a body at the end of Gundam 00. I guess they're bringing him back. And, you know, my initial response to that would be like, okay, that kind of sounds like they need to reset the status quo because how do you make a Gundam 00 movie with no purple hair boy in it? Um, but they wind up using it for a very, like, for exactly what you're describing, Sean. He is in the movie in body form very briefly and mostly to make that parallel with the L's of, like, he comes back, he's in the body, he lets that body die because he needs to save Setsuna. And then he says, he's on, like, the Veda screen and he's and they're like, oh, man, I'm sorry you lost your body again, Terry. And he's like... I, it's just, it's a shell. I don't, I'm here. You're, you're with me, you know? Um, and it's a very, very good use of the character. Uh, I also love the point Tieria makes about the like trinity of things Aeolia Schoenberg left behind of the Gundam, the Veda, 
and then the the whole idea of becoming an innovator and that all three are needed. Setsuna can't do it alone because he can't process the data, so you need Veda. And obviously he can't go fly through space and do all this shit without the Gundam. And so you put all of that together and that's what ultimately saves the day is, is a really cool idea. Yeah. And and I could just, you know, little little hologram Tyria Arde, like I... I I love them so much. I just love I just love that whole sequence. It's so heartwarming to me. There's something about their relationship yeah. that I love so much of when you find out that Ian has like Tyria instructed Ian to put Tyria into the quanta and it's like just put me in there with with my Gundam boy and we're going to go off and fly and and face the aliens together. Um yes. They're very good bros. Oh, it's great. Um I, it makes me want to go back and watch the whole series again. And just go back and knowing like where Tiaria starts and where Setsuna starts. And it's just, what a fucking journey, you know? <laughs> yeah, as someone who has seen it twice, I can say it is very satisfying watching the, the season one and being like, oh my god. Right, like here's the little boy Setsuna, here's, yeah, Tiaria's an asshole. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is like some of like the most dramatic character arcs we've seen in this whole franchise. Yes, and and done not across like multiple series the way you know Tomino's original saga had to be done, but in like one contiguous double O. It's two seasons in a movie, but you know all made in a pretty compact time frame. That's pretty fucking impressive. Yeah, yeah. So all right, should we focus maybe here on the on the end of the movie and the final stages? Uh, let's let's do some cleanup to hit like a couple of other characters. Just to okay. I, I think want to shout out a couple of people. Uh, I want to shout out my boy Patrick Colasar who continues. Oh to my have god! How did I forget Patrick? Some of the best shit uh, in the background. Like his relationship with Katie Mannequin is like so heartwarming. Um, I love the scene where he's like there. I one I love that Katie Mannequin and her whole thing is like situated on the base that ribbons had in season two. Yes. So all of their scenes are in that big, like palace looking area um, that all the ribbon shit was. And it's just like very weird to see normal people there and not like weird angel children. Um, and yes. And then when Patrick is trying to kiss her and then she gets a call and she just shoves him away. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's just, you get these little brief flashes of their relationship. And then of course, Patrick also gets his classic, um, you think he's gonna die, and then he is miraculously saved, and he's flung out into space uh, and lives to to fight another day because he is the immortal Patrick Colasar. I do love that Patrick Colasar is just floating out in space for the end of this movie and watching everything. They really, the one thing this movie is missing is the joke in like when it's fifty years later at the end that Patrick Colasar isn't also on the ship going away with all the innovators as like their invincible pilot. <laughs> And he hasn't even aged at aged. all. Yeah, yeah, he's just like the exact same guy. Yeah. He's great. I love his interactions with Katie. I love the joke that she is now a brigadier general, but he will not stop calling her his Taisa, his, his colonel. That's great. Um, and, and I love that, like, you do get the sense that they do have a loving relationship, but she is very good at compartmentalizing when <laughs> she is on duty and when she's off. And right before she shoves him, she's reciprocating. They're about to kiss, and, like, have this intimate moment, and then it's like she just snaps back into it and shoves him away. <laughs> it's, uh, Patrick Colasar, man, one of the best executed comic relief characters I've ever seen in anything. Um, just, like, the employment of that character from episode one to the end of this movie is phenomenal. Yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. It's, he's just very funny. I love him in this movie. And, and yeah, I think there, it's like, because they do use him for like effective dramatic moments like that as well. Like he feels like a fully rounded out character and not just yeah. someone who's only there for jokes. Um, but when he is there for jokes, he is very funny. <laughs> yes. 
Who else? Um, I think that might actually be it. I think we we touched on most people. We talked about Saji and Louise. We talked about all the Gun- the Gundam boys. Um, there is like I, you know I don't know if we have to like talk about it much. I do like there's um they introduced that one other innovator who's like the one on the side of the military that they kind of use for that big action scene. Um, like it's not like a super notable character, but I do like him and like the kind of the role he plays. And I think it's sort of evocative of you get that little window of what you get a lot of in normal Gundam where it's like, just, you know, just cause you're an innovator doesn't mean that you're like a perfect person in the same way that just cause you're a new type doesn't mean you're perfect. Um, because he's kind of a dick. That I agree, but that definitely felt like a kind of vestigial arm of the movie that sort of, I was, I was recapping the movie for myself before we did the podcast and like skipping through scenes and I saw him and I'd already forgotten that that was an arm of the movie because it's introduced. He seems significant and then he's killed in that fight midway through, and it just, I don't know, it felt, it feels a little vestigial to me. I do like the idea of having this other innovator out there. Uh, the voice actor for that character is really good, but it, it didn't, it doesn't really add up to anything, um, at least on my first viewing. Yeah, like, I don't think it's, like, a hugely notable part of the movie. I think it's because he's yeah. used for that exact purpose of, one, two, to sort of establish part of, like, what is happening is that it's... Because I think it's very important to establish that Setson is not the only person who's an innovator. I think that that's really important that, like, this is a thing that, like, Setson is part of a wave of people that are waking up to this, and it's not just him alone. Um, because I think it it removes a certain chosen one element from his story that I think would kind of weaken it if it was there. Sure, um, yeah. And then he's just, like, an, and a character to have there to be killed off in your, like, big action scene in the second act. Um, yes. That, yeah, he's not, like, a hugely notable character, but I do think he's used well for what the movie wants to use him for. That's fair. All right, so now should we talk about the grand finale of Gundam 00? Yes, one of the most memorable sequences to me in, in all of Gundam. So I think there's a couple points to that. I wanted to start with just the once Setsuna gets in there mm-hmm. and into the the sphere, the egg, the it, it reminded me a lot of like Persona Three. There's some Eva in there. There's some fucking Jackson Pollock in there uh-huh. with just like the colors everywhere. Um, it's so alien. And then I love that the entire story of the Els is just told in this trippy visual like. 2001 is the easy like comparison but it's not actually that 2001-esque because it is so um it's it's less abstract than that Mm -hmm. um but it's a it's a phenomenal sequence i actually as soon as i watched it i rewound it and watched it twice i i I, it took me 10 minutes to get through that five minute scene because i watched it twice in a row yeah no there's like particularly there's that uh, shot of like it's basically like a time lapse of that jupiter-esque planet that they're originally from um that is gorgeous and you see like the structure of like their society building out of that planet um yeah i think just like everything about it is so evocative and like you say it's like it's not particularly 2001 because it is very narrativized right it is this like it's almost like i would it's more like fantasia-esque or something right it's so like musical and visual like, yeah. um, with its storytelling um and just seeing that imagery of space um there's like an a unbelievably gorgeous shot of after the sun, their sun has gone supernova and there's like a white dwarf star in the background and like everything is like billowed out as this cylinder while the the sphere is leaving like the husk of that planet behind. Um, it's just like, yeah, there's some really gorgeous um, like deep space type imagery that they use there uh, in that sequence that's very powerful. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you talk about the Fantasia connection. I like that because it is like a condensed version of like the creation sequence in Fantasia. Uh, I would also compare it to the scene in The Tree of Life, which came out a year after this, um, by Terrence Malick, where it shows the creation of the universe. Uh, and the music side of this, we haven't called out yet. Kenji Kawai, obviously famous anime composer. We really liked his music for the show, but didn't talk about it a ton. I think it's even better in the movie. I think the movie has a phenomenal score. I think there is some just tremendous musical stuff in this, especially in the last half hour where it is leaning on that music very hard. Um, it's a really, really good soundtrack. And it's not even recycling much from the TV show. It, it is substantially its own thing, and it's really good. Yeah, it's mostly new material. There's a couple of like the major themes, because the, the soundtrack he did for the TV show is very leitmotif-heavy, um, and it's very effective. And so he uses yeah. some of those leitmotifs, although like a bunch of stuff that, yeah, he doesn't necessarily bring back. He uses a lot of new material. And it highlighted for me, like I think one of the things I had not felt about that soundtrack necessarily in the tv show but it definitely feels like it in the movie is like it it like some of the musical themes he uses including the ones that come from the tv show when you put them in this context all of a sudden it like feels very much like a kaiju movie score um like he has these like very heavier kind of military themes um in the music that he uses in the tv show all the time that didn't register me as like vaguely ifakube-esque but i think it does have like it's not it's not exactly Ifakube style of music, but it has a like tinges of that in this movie I can feel, um, in the big military sequences in particular. That yes, I think I think yeah. much like the Zeta movie soundtrack, it just like feels like this is like the best version of what you could get from the soundtrack for Double O and it being condensed in a movie like highlights what was good about the soundtrack already. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely correct. Um Okay, so that that scene is amazing. And then you have Setsuna and Tieria realizing they're being invited to the home planet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Setsuna has a line there that is to the effect of, this is why I was born. This is what my life was for. That line hit me really hard. And I think it is just the cumulative impact of, you know... They Setsuna has this tragic origin where he was a child soldier and he was brainwashed and he murdered his own parents... And I feel like in most versions of this story, you would eventually come back around to that very directly. You would have him confront and kill Ali al Saches. You would have him in his like weird flash where he sees everybody, see his mom and dad and get to say he's sorry. You would get something of that absolution. And they never do that with Setsuna. And I think we talked about in season two why it's important he never kills Ali al Saches, that like Lyle gets to do that because... That's where Lyle is, and Setsuna has frankly moved on. And I think where what they do in place of all that, to me, is that line of Setsuna seeing all of this and seeing what he is being called to do there and saying, this is the purpose of my life. And what it communicates to me, it's so succinct, it's like five words, but what it communicates to me is that all that pain he suffered, all the terrible things that happened to him, all the people he lost along the way and the bad things he had to do. If every one of those didn't happen, he wouldn't be here right now. And there would be no hope for humanity. This is like the world works in mysterious ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, life takes you to these places. And him saying, look at this beautiful meaning to my life. And now I invite it. And once he says that, there's zero hesitation. He goes right into it. There's no long goodbyes. There's no speech. In a very Setsuna FCA way, that is it. And that feels like the perfect culmination of that character to me. 
Um, it's just a moment where it's like they they fucking get it. Perfect. Yeah, I absolutely agree that that you feel the weight of the full character behind that decision. And yeah, I've always loved with Double O that they they obviously they use the tragic backstory stuff a lot with Setsu. Like he does have that flashback and stuff, but they don't deal with it as you say in the way that most media would, where it's like not so directly his fixation right it's not like batman who has a portrait of his parents hanging over him in every room of his house <laughs> and like that right like it's a part of who cessna is it's a part of his backstory and it's like he does have this trauma very directly associated with it and that trauma sprouts into the other traumas he has like losing lock on and stuff that you see in the flashbacks in season two but like it's it's a part of his backstory it's a part of who he is but it's not everything about his life crystallized in this one moment of him shooting his parents that he then needs absolution for and so you need to have as you say the big in he in his like heaven that he's created with the gn particles he has an encounter with the spirits of his parents um he does it like he encounters lock on spirit he encounters the spirits of christine and the the other guy who dies at the end of season one who was with uh celestial being um and he sees them but he doesn't see his parents um and yeah i think it is like really powerful that that is just a fact of the character um rather than it being like what the character is about um and it's the kind of thing that like with that sort of tragic backstory it's usually just like entirely what the character is what he's about and what he does um and here it's just a part of who setsna is and even without calling to it very directly it does feel like it so much informs that revelation he has of this is what I have lived for. Like every decision I've made, everything that has happened um, has been leading up to this moment. And that means that it has been worth it. And it is worth him having lived along the way to get here. Yes. And then poof, you know, he opens the portal and uh, uh, like, what a fucking payoff to the entire idea of the double O Gundam being able to quantize that we end with a suit literally called the QAN brackets t mm -hmm. uh and then it gets to do this just off to who the hell knows other side of the galaxy other side of the cosmos somewhere else uh and he's gone and the movie knows when to drop the mic when what he leaves behind is that flower and that symbol and um i mean at this point we are we are almost past like working in a narrative mode and it is in a poetic pure imagery pure cinema mode at a certain mm -hmm. point you know what i mean like not yes. quite that but that's more what it feels like uh in a similar way that and i it's an obvious reference this is kind of like char's counterattack yes but i think the end of char's counterattack is that too like the story you know kind of effectively ends with char's last line and then it is just watch the poetry and that's that's where we end is on this poetic note yeah, exactly. That it feels like you're sort of transcending the bounds of like the literal reality of the world in some way. In a way that like it makes it like impossible to imagine a sequel. I know that there was some talk of something, I think, connected to like the stage play version. There was something going around that there was never like any concrete deal details of like potentially doing something else in Double O Gundam World that came out with like an anniversary. But I don't know what that would even be because this feels like it's such a you have broken the world like it, it is like you are no longer in the reality you understand you have transcended into something else um like you said in a sort of poetic um world almost because there is a giant flower in space above earth um which is if you are still in the tonal space of the beginning of double o gundam would be the most ridiculous horseshit you had ever even heard of right <laughs> 
Um, which is why I think some people don't like this movie because if you, that is the space that you want, this is about as stark a break you could get from like the cold geopolitical discussions of the first half of season one of Double O Gundam that you could get is the giant space flower floating around Earth. Like it's the solar baby at the end of fucking 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's like it doesn't right. feel like you're supposed to read it literally as there is a giant baby that is about to come into contact with the Earth. It is representing something purely about the themes and messages of this this work of art. Yes. Yeah, I there there are constantly it's it's not a rumor. People involved have said things that they want to do a sequel. But other than doing some kind of prequel, which, you know, maybe there's a corner of this world that would be worth exploring. I don't know. My my immediate mind would be like, maybe there's a story with Sergei, but Unshoi Shizuka is dead. So sadly, no, there is not room for a Sergei story. Um, but like, it's a complete, it's a closed loop. Like, this is one of the most complete Gundam works. Mm -hmm. um, it's just its own thing. Like, you can always add more to the Universal Century. You could tell a new Gundam Seed story any day if you wanted to. You can't tell another Gundam 00 story. They they told the story. It's like doing a fucking Lord of the Rings sequel. Like, they destroyed the ring. It's done. It's, they destroyed the ring, and then J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the timeline out all the way to when he got the Red Book of Westmarch and started translating it. It's very done. I feel like Gundam 00 does that with the end of, like, and now we're 50 years in the future, and 40% of humanity are innovators, and Marina is a blind old woman, and she meets Setsuna, Metal Boy Setsuna again. We did it. We we took the wet red book of Westmarch from Hobbiton to modern day London. You know. Yeah, there's there's very much not room. It feels like for another story other than just like a side story. I don't know. Like again, I don't know if like like how far along any of that is because in the same way that like technically there is a Seed Gundam movie that is still in production. Technically, will that ever like surface? I don't think so. Probably not. But we'll, yeah. But yes, you. Yeah. The, the ending of Double Gundam, it would be hilarious to see what you would try to do with a sequel and try to address the fact that there's just a... In every shot that you can see the sky, there must be a <laughs> giant flower floating in space if you said it after this movie. Okay, but you know what? It's I got a great title for it, though. Okay. Mobile Suit Gundam Double O, Flower Children. There yeah, you go. There you go. There you go. All right, a little 60s reference for you. Um, okay, and so then we get the epilogue, Sean. Um, after a very good credit song, the credit song is great. Yes, that is also uh, Uver World who did the uh, the first opening for season two. Um, they yes. did the, the song over the credits. Uh, and I shall say the opening song is by uh, the Backhorn who did Wana, the first uh, closing theme. Yes. So it's all people who did who contributed to the TV show. They keep it all in the family here. Yeah, and um, Toza, Toza Sarita Sekai that that the opening theme to this movie is particularly good. That song fucking rules. Yeah. Um, okay, so final five minutes. We already talked, I think, about the Alolia Schuhenberg scene, but then mm. you go far to the other side, and we see this was the brain fuck for me, Sean, before we uh -huh. even get to Metal Boy Setsuna of just, oh, they're going 50 years in the future, and there's a space station out where the flower is, and it's called the Sumeragi, and 40% of humanity have transcended to innovators, and they're doing this big mission to go meet the elves and like travel into the far reaches of space, and you see little bits of the elves' metal bonded to some people. Um, that alone is enough of a, oh, oh, they're going for it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, and yeah. I also like that in the background of one shot, you see a Tieria... I don't think it's supposed to be like our Tyria, but there's like a Tyria floating in the background. Um, yes, so, I noticed that too. Yeah, so there, there's we still have our innovates kicking around, doing doing weird, cool stuff. Yes, 
Um, I do wonder about like is is it does like open some questions that you're not supposed to ask about like how is humanity working with a forty percent innovator society? Is there like a caste system? Do the people who aren't innovators like are they jealous? What's going on there? It's okay, we don't need to answer that right now. Uh, but then we do get Marina's uh, final scene where I feel like she's not. It's only been 50 years. I'm not sure why she looks quite as old as she does, especially in a future where I assume the longevity of a person's life is longer. But I guess we don't know how technically old she was in the show. Um, but anyway. I mean, she's also a fucking monarch, you know? Like, like you see how yeah. much a U.S. president ages in four years. Like, imagine that shit, but you're also living in a Gundam world. Like, imagine, like, okay, all the fair. shit she's been through in Double O Gundam. Like, I don't know how old she's supposed to be by the end of, uh, like, the run of that story. Uh, but she must have aged about 20 fucking years. It's like Barack Obama, if you look at him in 2009 versus 2016. Yes, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he aged about 20 years in that space, yes. It is the exact yes. same thing, so... <laughs> yes, you, you, you are reintroduced to her, she's old, she's at... Now um, I'm imagining fucking Barack Obama in, like, 30 years, blind, playing the piano, and then a metal, I don't know, Michelle comes in. <laughs> it's messed up. I anyway, sorry. You were right. Um, yes yes so you have old marina she's playing the piano she's of course playing um the melody from the song from the show with the kids um there's like a picture frame on her uh piano that you can see that she's like lived a full life with her friends and family and stuff um it's very rose at the end of titanic yes or it also since i you know this is where my mind always goes it is to doctor who and it's very much like the last christmas in doctor who with meeting old uh uh, Clara and like she's lived a full life uh, even though not actually because it was a dream spoilers for uh, an old episode of Doctor Who now um, but yeah so it's this she's lived this whole life on her own and she's now um, in this room playing the piano and the fucking door opens someone walks in and she stands up and says um, sorry my eyes don't work very well um, who is it and uh, what does Sessna say he basically says like I'm back um, I think so, yeah. It's like one of the first times he doesn't look at someone and say their full name and then say his full name. Yes. Marina Ismail, I have returned. Um, he just says, I'm back, and she immediately recognizes his voice, um, and then they embrace each other, and he says, you were right, and I understand you. And, and she says, like, we, like, it's been a long time, and like we've always been passing each other by, is what Marina says to him, which I love that yeah. line that we've we've always been missing each other. Um, like the sense of like been walking past each other basically their whole lives, and then they finally embrace each other and say that they understand each other. And the Gundam turns into flowers, and the movie's over. Yes, and it is it's very good. Just yeah, it is such a striking ending again in this like. I feel like you just can't read the scene too literally like it's it, or like it feels too ridiculous like you can't sit there and be like and what is Setsuna's life like now as a metal boy um instead you're supposed to understand it's like it is you know he has completed his mission as fully as anyone could because he is like he is he is the true innovator right he has transcended his humanity to like understand the L's by almost like becoming one of them, right? And that's like the culmination of his journey in this movie of seeking to understand them is he has become like them. Um, and has, and that is this striking image of him now made of metal like they are. And in the way that like, I just feel like that image of him as a metal boy is so powerful um, because it also like, I feel like it evokes that sense of his whole life He's that we've known him. He is trying to become the Gundam in a way that is what he now is, right? He is now made of metal like them. He has now, like, become that thing. 
um, and transcended that humanity. Um, and and then he embraces her. Uh, and and I love that they continue this thread of like their relationship doesn't read as romantic. It just reads as this like deep friendship that both of them were seeking from the other because they're two sides of the same coin seeking understanding from each other um their whole lives never quite finding it over the course of the tv show um it's where like again like if if the movie didn't exist a criticism i would have of season two of double o gundam is that it doesn't feel like it really resolves properly sets and marina's relationship it ends with that letter that marina writes which is good but it feels like things are hanging and this is what resolves that hanging feeling is that like, as you said, Jonathan, is this triptych structure. You have the letter from Setsuna in part one, you have the letter from Marina in part two, and then now instead of passing each other by, um, they can finally embrace each other and say that I understand who you are, you understand who I am. And it's like, we are together. Again, yes. not romantically, just as like people. Absolutely. It's... It is that feeling, like I said earlier, of I'm getting better at putting it all into words now that we've podcasted for two hours on it. But like now, Jonathan, we have now podcasted for five minutes longer than the movie is. That's great. That's how we that's how we fucking roll. Exactly. Um, Our Return to the King podcast, four hours and six minutes, bitches. That's how we go. Exactly. Anyway. um, Yes. So uh, awake. Yeah. But but like while watching it, metal sets in a crazy image. It's very out there, and yet just it feels right because because if Gundam Double O does not end with the moment where Marina and and Setsuna are in a room together and finally have a melding of the minds, then it hasn't ended. Like that mm-hmm. is what it has to go towards, right? If if Lord of the Rings does not end with Sam getting home and saying yes, I'm back and being with his family, Lord of the Rings doesn't end. You know, it's to reference Return of the King, just ran, like that's why that movie, it's so important that it does the full Tolkien ended, yeah. ending, you know? Because if it doesn't, you haven't actually ended the story. This is ending the story. Now, did I ever predict that ending the story would involve a metal Setsuna? No. But, but you know, the importance of them coming together and the metalness of it being what allows them to do that, that is the poetry of this movie. And then ending with that phenomenal image of the Gundam there. Who boy. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is one of my favorite sequences in this franchise. It's like peculiar as it is, but partially because it's so peculiar. Yeah. It's so different. It's so like it especially from like most of the franchise. Like it feels like something that you maybe would see a little bit in Mobile Suit Gundam in turn A. But for most of the franchise, I feel like it just doesn't quite go to th- this abstract of a place. Like it usually yeah. has a lot of the new type stuff feels more you know, literalized, right? It's more real. Um, and other like I would also say like the ending of F ninety one I think approaches that for me. Um, it has that similar feeling, and same thing with the ending of Star's Counterattack, which I guess yeah. is like a theme, right? These in these movies must end with this like image that is so powerful and striking and poetic and transcends like simple narrative reality, right? Because part of like the reality of the ending of Gundam F91 is those two people drift off into space forever and die or something. I don't know. Um, (laughs) It's hard to find like random people floating in space. Um, Like you're not meant to think about the practicalities of these two people embracing in space um, and floating away. You're supposed to be sitting there in the poetry of the moment um, in the same way with all the, like the logic of the ending of Char's counterattack. It's like, it's space magic and Char is a mama's boy. Like it's what, what, what do you, what logic do you need? Um, it, that was it, the original title of the movie, mobile suit Gundam space magic and Char is a mama's boy. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, it, I like that this trend of our Gundam movies end with this like striking moment of poetry. 
Yes. I might even argue Narrative Gundam does that for me. There's The best thing in Narrative Gundam is the last like five minutes of that movie. I'm going to um, be honest. I feel like I've forgotten most of Narrative Gundam. I, that that's movie, okay. That I liked that one more. Me. Maybe we have to do an actual podcast on that one when we get yeah. there. Because uh, we didn't give it its full due. And it is the other movie. Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah. It's... Sean, Gundam 00 is, is so good. I, I said last time on the show that I would hold off on saying where I would like maybe definitively place this in my Gundam canon until I saw the movie and saw it through. And especially after having seen the movie and talked to you about it for the last two hours and nine minutes now, I, this is in my top tier, I think. I think Gundam 00 is, is on the shelf up on the, the uppermost level for me. Or if not, then the level right below it. But one or two, it is. I don't mean it is the one or two, but if I'm doing my like dumb tier list thing... It's either it's either double S or S. I mean, we'll we'll have to revisit the rankings in like shockingly not that long because it's like I know, frighteningly June. close to the second anniversary of the podcast, uh, where we'll we'll have to talk about our rankings again. And yeah, like I mean, I will say that watching this movie again and just how much I like it because I really love this movie a lot. Like I think this would, I I would put this above F ninety one for me. Like I don't think it's above Shars Counterattack, but I think this would be my second favorite of the the hand. Like I think I like it more than any of the Mobile Suit Gundam. Like for putting all the Gundam movies in the original yeah. trilogy of Mobile Suit Gundam movies, and I mean the Zeta ones aren't like quite in that competition. Um, like I really love this movie, and I think it does kind of push it maybe for me almost into that space. So I'd have to sit there and look at that. Um, because Mobile Suit Gundam right. and Turn A Gundam are a hell of a fucking thing but it might be in that tier um it is it is certainly the closest thing uh yeah. because yeah it, it, this was like the, watching this movie was a really interesting experience because this is something i was both looking forward to and dreading i was looking forward to it because i was like i really need to watch this movie again because i feel like i didn't know what to make of it the first time i watched it again when i watched it i didn't even know aliens are going to be in it before i watched it so i was really thrown for a loop when i watched this movie for the first time um but like I was kind of dreading it because I know that there are some people that really hate this movie. And I was like, what if this movie is just bad? Like, what if like I just come down really negative on it and I am so in the opposite direction. Like, I feel like I might feel about this movie, Jonathan, the way you feel about F91 of that. Like, yeah, I, rec- I can recognize a lot of its flaws, but holy shit, like the stuff this movie does well, it just like hits me so hard. Um, it really it is like a huge plus to double O as a right. like story to me that like just how good this movie is. Yeah. And when I say I'm like tearing it, I'm thinking of double O as like one full thing, not yes, breaking too. out the movie. Cause like as a movie, I do like F 91 more than this movie, but obviously as a full entity, double O is more substantial than F 91. There's no, it would be in a higher tier than F 91. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to break it out. Like this this Shars counterattack and F ninety one are their own things. You would rank. It would be hard to rank the Double O movie apart from the show for me. So we'll have to discuss that when we yeah. get there to our rankings. Uh, luckily, this is our show and we can do whatever the fuck we want. I'm so. I'm gonna say right now we're not mid rating this as something separate than the show because it's <laughs> Good. because it's not trying to be right. It's not. No, it's, it's not even making a vague attempt of trying to stand apart from the the TV show. That yeah, I think it would be kind of impossible. Um, it's a to, movie length finale and yes. you just put them all together and double O is this thing that sits on your shelf in one big happy family. Yeah. Um, but should we now tell the kids about where we're going next, Sean, with Gundam? Yes. So so we're not going to quite jump into the next full length TV show, which will be Mobile Suit Gundam Age quite yet, because there has been a very weird 
strange corner of Gundam that has just been hanging around here in the 2000s for a little bit that we haven't addressed yet. And now at this point in the timeline, it has finished. So it feels like if we're going to do it, we have to do it now. And I want to rewatch these because I don't remember anything about the first half of it. And I remember the second half having some interesting stuff. So we're going to watch all of the MS Igloo episodes. Um, so that's MS Igloo 1 and 2. Um, and we will do all of that as one big episode because they're all kind of short things on their own. We are going to, you know, it was appropriate, Jonathan, that we we're talking about some CGI stuff uh, earlier in this episode. Because <laughs> if you want some CGI, we're about to get it. Because what MS Igloo is... Um, which is MS Igloo, The Hidden One-Year War, and MS Igloo, Apocalypse 0079, which are basically one story split into two parts, and then MS Igloo 2, um, which are like is kind of an anthology story. The thing that combines them all together is that they are all fully CGI productions. So some of these were yes. made in 2004. And so set your expectations for the ones made in 2004 appropriately. But by the time you get to 2009 for MS Igloo 2, the, the CGI is going to get better. So I'm going to say for people starting to watch MS Igloo, if you have not seen it before, maybe set your expectations appropriately for the visual quality you're going to see for the beginning yes. of MS Igloo. There is a Blu-ray set that just has everything in it, um, so you don't have to like search around. Um, or you can find it elsewhere, but but it is a it is tad confusing. I believe it's nine half hours total. Yeah. Um, so we're going to do that. And then I, at this point, am getting questions online pretty much every day of, are you covering this? Are you covering that? Right now, the plan, the path we are on, is finishing all of the Gundam, main Gundam, not SD Gundam. Maybe one day, just for now, we're pretending SD Gundam doesn't exist. So put that away. I'm, I'm just going to say, Jonathan, we are never going to do a full SD Gundam series. We might do an episode on like the shorts, because I've seen sure. some of the shorts. Um, that were like like that they were aired in front of some of like the movies like Shars Counterattack in the original trilogy. We might hit those at some point. They're kind of hard to find, also. But yes. I'm going to say I would I refuse to watch like the SD Gundam show that aired on Toonami in like 2005 and shit like that. Nuh uh we ain't going there. Okay. So there you go. You have it from Sean himself. But after this, so so what does that mean? We're going through all of it. Well, we are going to be doing Gundam Age. Uh, Gundam Age is not a two-season show, but it is a four-arc show, and we're going to split it into two episodes with two parts on each of those. So, set your expectations accordingly. Then you hit the, the original Build Fighters and its sequel, Build Fighters Try, uh, and we'll also cover some of the Build Fighters OVAs, so that'll probably be around three episodes. G-Reco, uh, Reconquista in G, is one 26-episode season, so that will be one episode. We're going to hit Iron-Blooded Orphans, seasons one and two. After that, then you get to the point where Gundam Thunderbolt has done its two movies slash seasons. Uh, and then finally, Gundam The Origin, which finishes in 2018. So that's where we will put it in the timeline. And at that point, we will be caught up full circle to the Gundam that had existed when Weekly Suit Gundam started. And then you have Build Divers and Build Divers Rerise, which have aired since we started this podcast. Which is pretty crazy. And you haven't seen them, Sean. No, I've seen a few episodes of Gundam Build Divers, um, and then I was like, like I can't watch this and watch other Gundam stuff at the same time. It was like, I'm just going to save it. So, yeah, I, I yeah. know very little about those shows other than what the first three episodes are, and that it's basically an isekai show in the style of like a Sword Art Online is most of what I know about Build Divers. 
Yeah. So we'll get to all of that. It's gonna that's 13 episodes of content that I just listed out. And so we're not gonna be doing that all at once, obviously. Um, but that is the master plan going forward. Um, there will be other things that will enter in. Mobile Suit Gundam Hathaway is going to come out somewhere in the middle of that, and we will review Hathaway when it comes out, obviously. I, we're not going to hold off on that, because we're going to watch it and we're going to talk about it, right, Sean? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm very excited. The, the trailer they showed a few weeks ago looked very cool. Yeah, so at some point that'll be out here and we'll talk about that. Um, we're going to do, at some point, a Crossbone Gundam episode on that six-volume manga, because it's great. Yes, I still want to do my episode on the Gundam novelization. There are lots of things we can do. There are other anime. But just recognize, we do the finish line is in sight for Gundam on TV. And that is sort of our main push for now. When it's over, that doesn't mean we're going to shut off Weekly Suit Gundam and not do any more Gundam talks. So if you have other things you want to talk about, that's okay. Just this is the immediate game plan. Does that sound fair? I think that sounds like a good plan to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited to, to get to some of this stuff. And then also, if, if people listen to this podcast but don't listen to the weekly stuff, if you like us talking about anime, we will be talking about Kimetsu no Yaiba also. So if you're not just only interested in mecha stuff um, but want to hear some other anime talk... We'll be doing yes. that soon uh, because also the movie's coming out soon. And I got my tickets for that uh, just the other day. So I got my tickets too. So actually the next two weeks of the Weekly Stuff podcast are both Kimetsu no Yaiba episodes. We're going to be recapping season one and then we're going to be talking about the movie. So I might even put those in the Weekly Suit Gundam feed as well just because they're anime based. I, they probably won't be Weekly Suit Gundam episodes, but just in case people are interested. Yeah, because um, I've got to say right now, I'm going to be referencing Gundam a lot <laughs> when we're talking about Kimetsu no Yaiba because it's now it becomes the lens through which I understand understand anime yes so you know uh maybe that'll show up in your feed um but either way you should subscribe to the weekly stuff podcast because it's a good show too and if you like us talking about gundam you'll probably like us talking about other things uh it'd be weird if you didn't um but yeah so sean we have we have podcasted for about seven hours total about gundam double o does that sound good Pretty, I think we did a pretty good job. We might want to do just another wrap-up episode just to talk about it. We just do a Patrick Colasar fan podcast. I think that will be the last one we do on Double F. It's time we know.